This is Rolling Rocks Radio with Jerry Armentrout, Cody Carter, and Scott Barker. Welcome to Rolling Rocks Radio, the podcast where we talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts, and anything else we find interesting, all while drinking whiskey. He's Cody Carter. What's going on? He's Jerry Armentrout. Hey. I'm Scott Barker, and tonight we have another special guest. Joining us tonight is a podcaster, a power lifter, a documentarian of strength culture, and Rolling Rocks Radio's first PhD guest. We have the creative energy behind the Scholars in Iron podcast. We have Dr. Joe Lombardo. Joe, how you doing tonight, brother? What's going on, guys? Glad to be on. So I'm honored. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So um, we usually ask our guests what they want to drink that night. Joe's in the middle of a training cycle, so he is not going to be partaking uh, with us tonight. But Cody Carter brought in the bottle, and he brought screwball peanut butter whiskey. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Okay. I I don't want to sound like a whiskey snob, but I am, uh, I am not a flavored whiskey guy. But both of these dudes have been telling me all about this. So it's not something I'm going to drink all the time, but it's, it's not bad. You put it in, you know, it tastes like a warm peanut butter cookie, man. It's great for wintertime. So I'm going to let Cody open the bottle and and pour us out. And then we'll go ahead and get started with Joe. So now this is the same guy who says he's not a whiskey snob, but he doesn't like flavored whiskeys. But yet when I was debating whether this would be a good whiskey or not, because it was a twist top versus a cork. He says, don't be a whiskey snob. Some of the best ones I've ever had was top. So, okay, he has a legit point. Oh, it's very factual. Yeah. Oh, man. It's a great sound. It's, yeah, it's a great sound. You can take and mix this with, uh, with a stick of spoon and layer it with a knee hag grape soda. It tastes like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've also heard that if you do equal parts cranberry, yep. it also tastes. I'll put it in. Uh, wife made homemade she makes homemade hot chocolate i'll put it in that all right boys cheers 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 joe i first to living through the moment see i like it i think it tastes like literally like okay I, that's actually really good it you, like you, a- you <laughs> converted me that is actually very very it's good it's not something i could sit down and drink a whole bottle of but have a have a glass of it on a cool night especially this time of year it's great that that's actually pretty darn what could you drink a whole bottle of Oh, I've done an entire bottle. <laughs> Dude, I was in the Marine Corps. I did a lot of bottles. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's how I woke up married the first time. There's a <laughs> oh, there's a story there. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's go ahead and kick this thing off. So, Joe, what's your story, man? Take us back to the beginning. Um, what's Joe Lombardo's story? You know, where'd you come up and how'd you get started in, in strength culture and training? Yeah. Um, well, I am a Yankee for sure. I was born in Boston and, uh, my folks are divided evenly between sort of urban New York and then upstate New York. So kind of a nice rural urban divide. Uh, but we, uh, unceremoniously moved to New Jersey and that's where I grew up mostly. Um, so, and I laugh at that because, uh, I didn't really like growing up there. It was sort of a very sanitized suburban experience. So at a very early age, I had this impulse to like, you know, get the fuck out of there and uh, explore other cultures, other, you know, sort of languages and did a lot of languages in college. I did Turkish and Russian, you know, traveled a bit, uh, had a great time. 
And, uh, you know, throughout that time, I was also sort of challenging myself, you know, with language and history, but also wanting to, you know, get more physically in shape. So even from your early age, my folks sort of enrolled me in your typical mall shop karate. I did that for, I don't know, six or seven years. Didn't really like it too much, but I did find my kind of second wind in it when um, Muay Thai first started sort of coming up in Jersey in like the mid nineties. So nice. I really took to that. Yeah. So I, my background's really more in, in fighting. Um, I did a little jujitsu, but I wasn't like a fan of the grappling so much. I just, I had like strong, powerful legs. So I just wanted to hit things. <laughs> that's, that's the, that was basically it. But from there, uh, I switched over to boxing and, I, and throughout college, I did boxing and I wanted to, you know, compete in diamond gloves up in Jersey. But at one point, my father kind of sat me down. And he says, look, either you're going to go to grad school or your head's going to be too dented up to do anything with it. So <laughs> I thought he had a point. So continue my education to grad school. And, um, you know, that was cool. But the problem was I sort of left behind all of my training and all my kind of love for challenging my body. I did some lifting here and there, but, you know, it was never really anything serious. And it wasn't until about, gosh, maybe four years ago, where I was sort of at my, you know, lowest point physically, that I realized that, look, I ain't getting any younger. At this point, I can feel all the pains from my 20s coming into my 30s. I'm 36 now, I'm going to be 37 um, next month. And I knew I had to do something about that. Um, you know, I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot. Uh, you know, I was working a crap job, uh, finishing my dissertation, you know, uh, broke up with my fiance. It was like a whole big kind of, you know, I don't know, situation, let's put it that way. And uh, that's when I decided, you know what, like it's now or never, let me get into lifting. So I kind of start off more with, I think like, like a lot of American men, you know, you sort of start with like bodybuilding as your archetype for lifting. You, you go to the cool. news, you go to the newsstand, you pick up the, the latest issue of flex or muscle and fitness yeah, exactly. or whatever. And all these natties on the cover, you're like, Oh, yeah. this is cool. uh, you know, it's like, yeah. And then of course you realize like, it's impossible. I'm not taking any of that stuff. And so, yeah, um, I, I did want to compete. I wanted to compete in more like classic bodybuilding. Like I really looked up to people like Frank Zane, for example, and the kind of the guys from the sixties and seventies. Like, I don't, I'm not into this, you know, whoever these guys are. I mean, Dorian Yates is cool. Don't get me wrong. But those dudes, it's just like, I don't want to do that to my body. <laughs> I don't want to look mass like monsters. Yeah. The mass yeah. monsters. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, not taking anything away from them. I just don't want to inject, you know, 200 cc's of growth hormone in my butt every day. Or, or the and, insulin that's killing them. Yeah. The insulin too. Right. Well, in the nineties, that was a big thing. I mean, these guys were taking so much insulin, they'd have heart attacks and stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty rough. Yeah. I don't see the point if you can't wipe your own ass. Your arm is so big, you can't reach. You can't reach around to wipe your own butt. I mean, I wish I had those problems. I'll be honest; like I kind of wish I did, but my arms aren't that big. So, <laughs> like, I wish I needed a bidet yeah, for but. that reason. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, from bodybuilding, you just realize it's a very subjective experience, right? I mean, the judges will look at you, and if they don't like how you look, that's it, right? There's no real standard per se. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also coming into, uh, into powerlifting kind of gives you more objective goals, right? There's gravity. You either yeah. lift it or you don't. That's yeah, you, it. It's black and white. It's simple. You either make the lift or you don't. Whereas yeah. bodybuilding is kind of, it's an aesthetic sport. It's based on the interpretation of your judges, right? It's very powerlifting and uh, Olympic 
uh, weightlifting. It's kind of black and white, right? You either do the technique correctly at the weight or you don't. Yes, sir. That's correct. Yeah. So I, uh, I sort of just sort of dabble in that. And then, you know, um, just as I was moving, so I've been in Virginia. Well, people from, you know, Virginia don't call Arlington, Virginia. I realized that, but, uh, Northern Virginia, the DC area, um, you know, there weren't a lot of powerlifters here. And I, I moved here about a year and a half ago and I was trying to find a culture and a community, you know, up, up in Jersey and Pennsylvania, powerlifting is like pretty big, you know, in general. And I realized that powerlifting in Virginia is big. It's just that it's definitely not in my area. It's more like in, you know, Roanoke and Richmond and, you know, Manassas and, you know, yep. here it's all like CrossFit, whatever, you know, I'm not yeah. into that. So, <laughs> so I, uh, a buddy of mine, um, he's a, a former Marine, he's a combat vet from the first Gulf War, Mike. We both did our PhDs and, um, you know, we realized that as we were, you know, sort of working out and training and he's at this point in his late fifties, you know, we, we both realized in academia, there really isn't like a voice for people like that. You know, it's, it's academics tend to be, and I went to school in New York, my, my PhD is, you know, there people live that kind of dark sort of, you know, ironic lifestyles in Brooklyn in places like that. They're skinny, you know, they're sarcastic. It doesn't really lend itself to, you know, I don't know, improving your body, let's say they're more into that kind of stuff. So for me, I never really identified with that. And um, as I was lifting, I just realized that there just wasn't really a culture for people like me. Um, on one hand, I like to discuss, you know, literature, philosophy, you know, kind of my, uh, my mainstays intellectually. But on the other hand, the same people want to discuss those things don't want to discuss, you know, your rep and set schemes for your bench press or deadlift, you know? Um, yeah. And vice versa. It's not, you know, sounds elitist, I guess, but it's vice versa. It's like, you know, there's not too many powerlifters that are going to want to talk about Hegel or Nietzsche or people like that. And so um, the whole podcast idea and my whole sort of venture into it was really my, my buddy's idea. In fact, he gave it the name Scholars 9. That was not my initial uh, choice of words, but it just sort of stuck. And uh, yeah, we just started about, you know, gosh, what, 2019, the fall. And we wanted to kind of make it sort of a platform where we can kind of talk about these ideas and, um, it's been kind of fun, you know, uh, I don't know, meeting different powerlifters, realizing that some of these guys are poets or they studied philosophy or theology. So, you know, you kind of get into it and in some ways it kind of breaks down the stereotype of kind of the meathead, you know, as well. Um, the people who have not really received it so well have been my fellow academics who think that I'm pursuing some sort of like closeted fascist. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what to make of it, but I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that at all. So toxic I was just gonna say well what it reminds me of is like the approach you're taking really reminds me of like the samurai ethos yeah mm -hmm. you know these guys were the warrior class held in the highest of regards but yet they were poets oh, yeah. they were artists they right you know they they did they had to have that yin and yang well look balance to be well-rounded they what wrote they wrote plays, they did opera, they danced. Yeah, they did I calligraphy. Mean, yeah, they did they, everything because there was as much respect in that as was the other because you have yeah. to have that balance. Well, to do that, you know, yeah. to be able to kill. Yeah, and, and, and that. at that level, you know what I mean? You've got to have some sort of outlet, you know what I mean? Or, or else you go from being yeah. capable of violence to you just become violence. Yeah. You know, you've got to have something to balance it. Like you said, your, your friend, uh, Mike, was a former Marine. I mean, a lot of people don't, they always, they always talk about Marines being meatheads and stupid and stuff, but we actually have required reading 
to get to the next level. You have to read so many books and they're not like cheesy books. These are normally, you know, Art of War. I remember to get to Corporal, I had to read, had to have read The Art of War, Starship Troopers, and then uh, Colonel Hathwork's uh, book about, about face, and a bunch of other books. These are some serious okay. books on leadership and life. And I mean, you get way up in there and, you know, like it, pe people always want to judge just because, oh, well, if he lifts weights, he's stupid. It's very interesting that that Cody brought up the the samurai tradition, yeah. Joe, because you and I were talking on on chat the other night about our shared interest in Yukio Mishima, um, who I don't know if you guys are are familiar with with Mishima, but he was um, he was the last guy to commit seppuku in public. He tried to overthrow the government in the late seventies. Uh, yeah, I know you know, but he tried to overthrow the Japanese uh, government in the late 70s and bring back the emperor. Yeah, he was one of the first. He was one of the first people to make bodybuilding a mainstream thing in Japan. Okay. Um, and he was, Joe, you would say he was decidedly right wing in the, the realm of Japanese politics at the time, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was, <clears throat> I mean, yeah. a lot of folks who are into bodybuilding, right? I mean, The Sun and Steel, this is the book right here. I don't know if you can see the cover. Yep. I mean, this is, it's like a hundred page essay. It's basically what, you know, kind of some guys gravitate towards to find a philosophical basis for strength training, I guess. But um, he's very nuanced, right? I mean, first of all, he, he's, he's gay. He was openly gay, or for at one point he was openly gay. Um, and he has a very kind of interesting kind of critique of like Japanese bourgeois morals in society as well. So, I mean, he harkened back to like the Budokai and these like kind of ancient Japanese codes of honor. But at the same token, you know, he, he was such a, a bourgeois man himself that I think he kind of evades. Yeah, he was right wing, but I think he evades kind of what you would think of as sort he, of- he, I, From what I remember, uh, because I know a little, I know a little bit about about what he why he wanted he he thought Japan was stronger when they had an emperor because it gave them a direction. His whole thing was they had lost direction. They were just kind of he felt like Japan and the Japanese people were just milling about. All they did was make stuff for other people, for other countries. They exported almost everything, and they did they had lost their way as a, as a culture. They were just absorbing everybody else's. And, and when there, there was also the, the, at that point in time, China still had a, yeah. a pretty big influence. And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but China still had a pretty big influence in Japanese culture. And, and what Mishima saw was uh, too much of an influence from Chinese communism in Japanese society, which is kind of why he wanted to try to take yeah. it back to uh, the time of the emperor and, and reinstall the emperor on the throne. You know, that... That really doesn't surprise Mashima. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me about him, though, from that warrior perspective. Because mm -hmm. you guys remember that Bible study we did recently? Yes. We talked about the heart of the warrior, and it mm -hmm. talked about that that's where the fire of a warrior comes from. It's, it's really two things. A, a king or an emperor you, 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 know, you love and a cause that you yeah. believe in. You know what I mean? They, the, a warrior needs those two things to exist. And it sounds like he was trying to fill a void that he didn't see. He, he, he saw Japan faltering. And back, if, if you go back and look at the 60s, 70s, early 80s in Japan, they were, 
they were basically someone else. It was almost like, mm-hmm. uh, it's, well, it's almost like a hundred years, a hundred years before America and Britain had complete influence over their country. This is the same time that uh, the Ip Man movie was the made, first right? One, yeah. The first original one. Original, original one. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, Mishima, it's funny that you brought that up, Cody, because yeah. like I said, we were talking about Mishima earlier. That's Mishima's cool. writing is absolutely beautiful. And you know, Joe mentioned um, you know, some of his critiques of Japanese uh, you know, consumerism, and you can see that in the Sea of Fertility tetralogy, especially the second one, Runaway Horses, right? When he's got he's got uh, the lawyer who was the, the, the friend of um, the prince in the first one. And he's talking with the young kindoist um, who's trying to bring back the um, was it the the League of the Divine not the League of the Divine Wind but oh no you know it's it's kind of that same thing it's that play against modern Japanese culture and the 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 you know more antiquated Japanese culture um, but yeah his writing is so beautiful and and we were talking about it on um, on Instagram but. I learned about Yukio Mishima from all, of all people, Henry Rollins. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I love Rollins. Rollins, Rollins is, yeah, Rollins is another one of those does not fit your stereotype. He's a hard as a come metal guy. You know, some of the darkest metal I've ever listened to when I was growing up, Black Flag. Black Flag, stuff. yeah. Henry Rollins. I mean, when I was a teen, when I was a young man, like I'm a liar. That was like my theme song. Yeah, we've talked about that. That was like my my. That was what I would play to chicks when chicks would want to get into like what What's your song? This This is who I am, and then they'd all get mad at me because I'm doing that stuff to them. You should take this as a warning. warning. Just so you know, <laughs> run while you can. That's yeah. why I had a coffee cup that it's said like a you disclosure. Should, yeah, yeah. It's really not even a warning. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a yeah. well. It's just like my coffee cup that said you should think about leaving when you're done with this. <laughs> here's your coffee leave. Uh, uh so joe you've got uh, yeah. you've got your phd so um if i remember properly it's uh political science and international affairs yeah basically oh, good, good. Yeah. so what led you into that particular realm of <laughs> academic study oh yeah. man i you know honestly i don't uh i don't really know i think for me, I, you know, I just like studying, I like research, I like writing, I like kind of critique. And so I think with the PhD program, um, you know, I had sort of two paths, if you will. If I didn't get into this, this program, I would have tried to become a longshoreman in New Jersey. Uh, so I was involved in like kind of, you know, labor organizing and union politics up in uh, New York, New Jersey. Okay. Um, but I got in. Uh, and so I said, all right, well, you know, let me, let me try this out. And, um, grad school for me in general like it's okay it's it's full of a lot of you know well-intentioned well-meaning folks but it's um it's it's very narrow you know people are are hyper specialized in different areas and that's kind of all they want to talk about and so uh with the phd and the the program um i kind of more or less kept to myself i made like one or two friends and um you know the rest of the time i was just sort of doing my own thing uh, but I was I was lucky enough. I, I lived in Turkey for about close to four years. I traveled around there a bunch. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Eastern Turkey with the Kurds. Oh, and wow. I, I studied, yeah, I studied like sort of like the politics of like dams, if you will, like hydraulic infrastructure and the way in which mm. it kind of uh, replicates state power in Eastern Turkey. And 
So, uh, you know, I got to places like the Iranian border, the Syrian border. Um, I was in Turkey during the whole coup d'etat that was occurring in 2016. So that was interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, it's you were there of, after. So you were there after the first Gulf War and then before, yeah. and then when the start, this last push and stuff. Okay. That's yeah. Nice yeah. Thing. So I was, the last time I was in Turkey, the, in terms of year, uh, was like December of 2016 is when I left. Okay. Um, yeah, so at that point, I remember um, being with uh, this this woman at the time was dating my ex fiance. Uh, we were like in Antep, which is a border city in Syria. So we literally saw the Russian jets like bombing ISIS targets. Oh wow! Um, like two hours away. Meanwhile, we were on our like romantic, you know, <laughs> getaway. And, uh, you know, Allow me to woo you to the sounds of artillery. Yeah, Tur- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah Turkey is just- one of those weird ones because Turkey. Not only are they, they're a member of NATO, but they also get uh, supplies and training and uh, advice from Russia. Yeah, Turkey always plays both sides. Yep. That's been like their historic role. Like the, the Turks back at, back in the day, the Turks are pretty pro-American. You know, if you were an American going to Turkey, I mean, even, even then, if you're like a white American in Turkey, it's like, they might not like the idea of America, but they'll be very respectful to you and they'll want to like show off their English. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have traveled. It's, it's probably the same in a lot of those countries. Um, but Turkey always tries to play both sides. And so when I was, when I was there in 2015, for the last time uh, there, um, they hated Russia and they were kind of, you know, softly pro-American. And then once the whole coup happened and then Putin was the first to call up Erdogan and say, hey man, you know, like tough break, we support you. All of a sudden, like the anti-American comes out, um, you know, everything pro-Russia. So it's it's a very, you know, they play both sides culturally and politically off one another. And uh, yeah, they arrested some, uh, they arrested some American servicemen and uh, for being part of that coup. I remember that no that kidding. was a big deal. That. Oh, yeah, they, they actually seized one of our bases because we have several bases in Turkey and they actually uh, seized one of our air bases and arrested a bunch of servicemen claiming they were involved in the coup and it got kind of dicey because they're a member of nato and they are arresting nato members and it turkey was starting you know started pulling in russian equipment so right. it got kind of they i think they realized really quickly that they'd be standing on their own that russia wasn't actually going to back them if we decided we really didn't like them so but yeah turkey yeah turkey's that weird country it's just kind of Whichever the wind blows, they're kind of like Italy during World War II, right? Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. whoever's got the stronger footing in the region at that particular time. Oh, we love you, you know, Hitler. Oh, we love you, uh, yeah, Eisenhower. It's, you know, it's funny. Yeah, too. Turkey, yeah. like Turkey, in many ways, is an American. There, I can, I think Americans can relate to Turks in a few different ways. Actually, um, one is that even though we have some sort of European descent in terms of you know political institutions or maybe even some culture aspects we're still kind of right euro skeptic right i mean i don't know too many americans maybe who would you know necessarily identify as being euro american versus just american and turks the same way um so i can understand when like when europeans get all haughty like oh we're doing so much good things in the world what are you guys doing i think turks and americans can kind of like all right like fuck you <laughs> you know <laughs> we can agree on that level and um we're also a little bit more conservative or respectful i think in terms of like faith so, um, you know, I'm, I'm Christian, uh, practice, well, I try to practice as much as I can. Um, so I can very much identify with like a moderate Muslim there who, 
you know, isn't going to like go rip on like religion all day long, like the Europeans will. Um, even though I believe in free speech and you can totally do that. Um, there is that kind of commonality that I feel like with Turks, I could relate to more than say like some, you know, bougie Berlin, you know, whatever. Yeah. Street dweller that, you know, makes fun of everything. Everything's ironic and, and nothing is, you know, sacred. So. Right. Well, we kind of, I mean, we've had a, the Turks, uh, we actually helped, had the Turks helped us in our first foreign foray back in when we fought the Barbary pirates. Oh, that's Actually, right. Yeah. yeah that's right. Marines used Turks mercenaries to help overthrow what is Iran. Yeah. Yep. No kidding. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Know. They, uh, the, the whole, uh, the Barbary Pirate War started and they seized one of our ships and wanted a ridiculous ransom. Uh, ransom is would be like $50 million nowadays. And then, you know, we just became a country. We just, uh, it was 1805. And they were called the Muslimen back then, not Muslims. Right. They called themselves Muslimen. So we they actually sent a detachment of Marines under uh, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon to Turkey, and he got in uh, other places, and he got Bedouins and a bunch of mercenaries, and he overthrew Iran. Well, what back what then was it was Iran? Well, well, it yeah. was Persia, but he overthrew, and they put in uh, their own leader. That's why the Marine Corps carries the curved sword, the Mamluk sword, because it's actually a Persian scimitar. It was a gift. Yep. Oh, I did not know. Well, that's fascinating. All so right. What? Yeah. Shores of Tripoli. Yep. So you know why? Um, mer- so needless to say, Jerry is a Marine. I Jerry, love history. Uh, Jerry's, no. <laughs> Jerry's a former Marine. So um, you know why Marines are called Leathernecks, right? No, tell Same me. Thing. I know you know, but Same I'm thing. asking him. Same thing. I should, I should, Mike. At some point, I feel like we've had this discussion, but I shamefully forgot. So you'll have to enlighten me. So, no, go ahead. Okay. So during that, during that encounter with the Barbary pirates, um, of course, the 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 Muslims or the Muslims at the time liked to take heads. So the Marines under Presley O'Bannon started wearing leather straps around their neck to protect them from being beheaded. So that's where they got the nickname Leatherneck. That is fascinating. Oh, wow. Mike knows that, but I'm probably going to remind him about that. That's oh, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff from back net that started from that engagement. Uh, the reason officers have braid on the top of their uh, covers, their, their hats, is yes. so that when we, they had sharpshooters in the crow's nest, they know who to shoot. Because you're 80, 80 feet up and there's people fighting below you, you shoot at the guy who don't have the break. No kidding. Nope. That's oh, what it's man. for. That's very interesting. What it's for. So, so Joe, what was your dissertation on yeah. for your PhD? Oh that's, that's uh, oh, son, that's a deadly question. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will try to keep it uh, as succinct and concise as possible. So, yeah, I mean, basically I was looking at the Cold War era in Turkey, and I was looking in particular at the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey um, in terms of sort of, how do you say, like sort of technocratic politics or technocratic relations. Okay. So, um, as Turkey was sort of trying to subdue its eastern Kurdish areas with the military, it realized that it can keep sending soldiers to like bludgeon these people to death. Like at some point you have to have like a country and you have to have, you know, codes and institutions and so they started to kind of build a series of dams because Eastern Turkey is very water rich. So I, I worked mostly on the Euphrates, for example. Okay. Um, and so the U.S. was sort of part of this effort to kind of build dams along the lines of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Hoover Dam, 
and to support that effort. Um, and so that was really it. And basically how dams sort of have this sort of political element to it, um, which even though it, it did sort of help, you know, Turkify the East, um, it also like annoyed or pissed off a lot of the ethnic Turks as well, who tend to be much more right-wing and conservative. So it, it ends up that, you know, even though it kind of the, the state was stabilized through this hydraulic infrastructure at the same time, it also kind of destabilized some of their natural allies there. So when you talk about dams in Turkey, it's almost like nobody likes them, but at the same token, they appreciate like the electricity and things like that. But they also see it as kind of, if you're talking to a Turk, they feel like it destroyed Turkish culture. If you talk to a Kurd, they definitely think it destroyed their culture. Um, so I mostly focused on that, you know, published it and then promptly decided that academia was not my cup of tea and, uh, and sort of left. So that was like 2018 was when I finished up and I was, I did my Fulbright over there in 2015 to 2016. And I had a, a year to write and, you know, start getting jacked as I lifted. So <laughs> that's what kept me sane was basically going to the gym and writing. So, you know. But yeah, that, that's basically it. I mean, I think I recently saw like some hit on, on like academia.edu, like somebody quoted me somewhere. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. Nice. Yeah. A petty, a petty ego stroke, you know, I never hurt anybody. But uh, yeah, so that's basically what I studied. I mean, that's actually, a, I mean, that's a amazing to study, to go over there and live with them and study because that's, that's an interesting place. I mean, it's got influences that go way back we've been america britain russia everybody's been over there china's been around that area i mean yeah that's an interesting very interesting place so what was it about turkey that because you've been there your 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 phd dissertation was revolving around turkey yeah. what what was it about turkey that sparked your interest that that made you want to really investigate that culture and and that socio-political system um to the extent that you have so so honestly the uh the beginnings weren't for a very noble reason i was in moscow studying russian and i found russia so oh. goddamn depressing yeah it's just it's it's russia is one of those countries where when you go have you guys been to Russia? Or, no, or negative. Ukraine or anything? No. Um, it almost feels like a country that its its soul is sort of dying on the streets. Like people are just exhausted. I mean, I've never seen so much public drunkenness in my life. Um, it was just really sad. And I don't say that with any sort of, you know, I don't know, like arrogance. Like it really is kind of sad. So after being there, I'm like, you know, honestly, I don't know if I can see myself going back here. I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was fascinating. It definitely wasn't like any of the Dostoevsky I ever read, um, which is why I kind of went there because I was interested in like literature. Um, everybody else that I went to on their program basically wanted to go into the CIA and I was the only guy who was like, yeah, let's, let's read some poetry, you know, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's this Turkish guy there. We started talking and I'm like, you know what? Turkey sounds warm. It's got palm trees. Um, it has beaches. And I said, you know, why not? And so I think from that very kind of like base crass, like, you know, uh, heartstring pull, I decided to just go there. So 2007, mm -hmm. I originally wanted to study Ottoman history. Um, wow. Yeah. 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 And Ottoman history is massive and it's broad and it's yeah. actually very mm -hmm. understudied. 
um, believe it or not. It's it's not it's not like the Roman Empire Greeks, you know, where everything is written about them is written. You know, um, Ottoman Turks are are not as well explored. So well, they're they're always used as the enemy. If you if you look at anything, yeah. Ottoman and the Turks are always the bad guy. Even it was, uh, I mean, in any cinema, any books, if you're an Ottoman Turk, you were evil. I mean, think about what was it, the Knight's Tale. Yeah, he literally when he's he's introducing Heath Ledger's character, he's talking about you know protecting a young virgin from her evil Ottoman Turk uncle. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's like they throw Ottomans and the Turks back. You know, back then were oh, were evil. No matter even if you look at them, they're like, no, they were doing nothing different than anybody else, and they actually were pretty peaceful and intelligent. But it was okay if Alexander the Great cock killed all these people. But hey, if the Ottomans came the other way, oh, that's just no. Nah, we well, can't have that. If you look at the legend, you know yeah. the, the legend of Vlad Tepish, yeah. right? The guy yeah. behind yeah. Dracula, right? Yeah. That was that was all about um, about resisting the, the Ottoman the Turks yeah. as they moved into Romania. Yeah. So you know, same kind of deal. Um, but to your point about their history, right? They have, if I understand it correctly, they have a different way of recording history than Western um, than, than Western societies. If I understand it properly, I could be wrong. But they don't use they don't use dates to define um, occurrences. They use occurrences to find dates. If that makes any sense. Um, their 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 history is more contextual than it is date based, which and like I said, I could be wrong about this. So you're the PhD. Correct me if I'm off. I, yeah, I, I wish my PhD could speak to that knowledge. Um, I I have a funny story though, sort of funny in a, a nerdy way. But um, when they were trying to catalog Ottoman documents from like the 15th century, um, you know, they have like typical Ottoman document has like the date or whatever in the Islamic calendar. Then it has the Shada, you know, like. There's only one God, but God, you know, that whole, yeah. and then it goes. So when the cataloger was looking for all these like stacks of ancient documents, he realized, oh, you know what? Let me just cut off the top part because then everybody knows the Shahada. We don't need to cut. Shahada. Oh, no. He ended up like basically dismembering the chronology of all these documents. So they literally had to like carbon date like thousands of documents because it's one oh, of the that, Ah, who cares? Yeah, he didn't understand what he was reading basically. Um, so... <laughs> That was sort of a nightmare, but um, yeah, I mean, the Ottoman Turks, you know, they always saw themselves as Europeans, first and foremost. If you look at some of the ancient coins back in there, not that ancient, yeah. Renaissance period, they all had the kind of, you know, silhouette-facing coins of Suleiman the Magnificent or whomever. Um, they were Muslim, for sure, but they saw themselves as European, and I think once you get to, like, World War II, that's when you start to see this kind of almost Asiatic, if you will, veneer that the Europeans saw them as, right? The sick man of Europe, that kind of mm. thing. Well, we, um, I think they saw them as second-class citizens after, after World War II. They were, uh, they were good enough to help us win the war and beat the Germans, but then they were just kind of, oh, yeah, they're not as good. Well, we did that to people in the well, United States. Yeah, I mean, we yeah exactly. Well, it, wasn't, it really wasn't America. It was the Europeans because England well, England had territory somewhere. There. Yeah, well, exactly. We learned it somewhere. But yeah, the, yeah, that Dracula thing was, yeah, that, that goes to just disrespect. That whole war started over disrespect. Could have very well have been. It was. It, uh, Vlad Tepes was the ruler. Uh, the Ottoman sent to uh, messengers to see him. And they refused to remove 
their turbans in his presence. Oh, and uh, because they only took it off for God and he wasn't God. So he nailed, them, he nailed it to, to their head. To their head, yeah. Ooh. And sent it back. So the Ottomans took that as a challenge. And yeah, it, it, it all goes downhill from there. Yeah. He got <laughs> his name, uh, Vlad Tepish got his nickname, the Impaler, yep. because every uh, messenger or assassin they sent to try to take him out, he impaled them and uh, staked them up along alive. the road alive along the road to his to, to Castle Braun in Romania. They he would, must have been a pretty bad He would put, He was yeah. a badass. Well, yeah, he, he actually mm. had to fight to regain his throne from his own uncle. Yes. Because his own he uncle had to tried overthrow to kill his him. Uncle. Sent him. He went running to the mountains, had to re, get up basically a militia, went back, took back his throne. I mean, mm. yeah, his, his, well, I mean, he's, he's good and he's bad. I mean, his way of torture, Impaler was he would take a naked, he would take you and you were, you were nude. Yep. And they would up your butt, out and, your mouth. Yep. The spike would go in your butt and mm-hmm. through your mouth, and you would die slowly. Yep. But he also, yeah. once your when they said, the Hey, we have a lot of poor people in Romania. There's a lot of people who can't eat. What do you want to do about it? He said, Well, invite them. Let's build this big hall. Let's invite them for a feast. When they came for the feast, he locked the doors and burned it down and said, Oh, there goes the, there goes the poverty problem. Oh, wow. No kidding. Yeah. He was, yeah. he was, twi- he was. I mean, he was yeah. dark. He, he was, was very, yeah. very dark. He, he, everything that Bram Stoker right, yeah. did to him is not necessarily unwarranted. But the, the funny thing is, if you, <laughs> the, well, the funny thing is, if you go to Romania and you talk to yeah. Romanians, they look at him like we do George Washington. Yeah. He because, protected their line. Yeah. He protected their country and freed them from the Ottoman Turks. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine, married a girl from romania and man if you wanted to get her really upset start talking dracula yeah. because it it's basically like if if england or somebody took george washington and made him into frankenstein's monster same thing well bram stoker took the idea from lord byron yes and lord byron actually lived in turkey and romania in different places lord byron oh. you know, the great george gordon but also known as Lord, <laughs> Lord Byron, Byron. Uh, was actually was also a mercenary. He served. He died. They serving in the Turkish army is where he died. Well, they think he died. Yeah. Well, he was he was also a notorious rake. So yeah, he he got in a lot of duels. He he had issues. He he liked to sleep with married women. Yeah. Yeah. He, and then he would fight duels, kill people, and then they'd get mad at. Him. Yeah. I mean, it's like you know. Roger. So question for you. So, so another question for you, Joe, um, are you, have you read any, um, George Herbert? You mean Dune? Yes. Oh, or Frank yeah. Herbert. I'm sorry. Frank Herbert. Frank, I had a feeling it was yeah, something Herbert. Yeah. You my know, bad. uh, I tried and then I just watched the movie. <laughs> so, which is pretty shameful because usually I'm a reader. But no, I have not actually read that tome. Have you? What's uh yeah, actually I've read it from start to finish, like and even some of the sequels that his son has written. The okay. the, the reason I ask is because your study of dams in Turkey, one of the main fear or one of the main um 
tropes in the Dune books is hydraulic despotism. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's like a big, yeah. So it, it, it made me think of your work in Turkey with, you know, the, 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 the dams and whatnot made me think of Frank Herbert and that, um, that, that story uh, technique in the Dune books. No kidding. Well, yeah, I mean, and that, and that idea was really big problem. When did he write that? Was that in the 60s or so? When did Dune 50s, 50s, 60s, yeah. yeah. So that was, it's interesting too, because as you're, you're saying this, I mean, the idea of, you know, hydraulic bureaucracy and all that was a big, big term that was deployed in the 40s and 50s by a lot mm -hmm. of social scientists to describe uh, China and, and the way that kind of China developed. Um, and, so, and really that 50s and 60s, that whole generation, right, all, all four and eight, that was obsessed with dams. I mean, that's yeah. all the U.S. was doing. If they weren't going to war with somebody, they were building a dam for somebody. Um, so it's interesting to see that kind of you know, uh, that sort of context there. So yeah, but that's exactly when it kind of came about, hydraulic bureaucracy and all that. So man, if it feels like a million years ago talking about this, because I don't know, like 2018 was the last time I thought about this subject. So you're really, uh, <laughs> you're really drinking up some, uh, some memories here. It's cool. But that this is, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff we dig, right? I mean, we, we talk about jujitsu and mixed martial arts and we drink whiskey, but like, this is the kind of stuff that, that we're into and it, it kind of falls back to your comment about you know your uh academic uh you know compatriots like kind of not understanding why you're interested in strength culture right i'm right. I, i'm an engineer right so i oh. have this, i have the same issue right like my buddy i've got a, the same guy who married the romanian girl calls me the anti-engineer right? Because I do martial arts, I lift weights, I, you know, I do all these things that a typical engineer based on, you know, th that archetype isn't supposed to do. Right. So it, it's kind of the same thing for us, right? I mean, we're, you know, we're jujitsu guys. Um, Cody has done some amateur fights, uh, MMA fights. Jerry's done some amateur boxing matches. You know, it, you would think that, you know, we're to, to use your term, we're all a bunch of meatheads, but, you know, we all read, we have interests outside of this. So um, I just, you know, it's, it's interesting when people who have a broader uh, set of interests than what their sociopolitical or um, boxes, yeah, it? box or, or, you know, a, um, career box puts them in. It's really interesting when those people get together and they start trading notes and the last, the, the third segment of this podcast is going to focus on that. So we're going to hold that for just a minute um, until we get to that part. But um, I think this is a good place that we're going to take a little break. Um, and I'm going to, sure. and we're going to uh, hear from episode 11, special guest, Matt Warner, his novel, Empire of the Goddess. And we will be right back with Joe Lombardo and the Rolling Rocks team. So we'll be right back. My name is Thomas Dillon. You may know me as the man who supposedly killed his own son to collect insurance money. The truth is my little boy, Walter, was abducted by a religious cult. They took him to a parallel world, to an America run by religious fanatics and plagued by disease. I know because I've been there, and I found my son. It's a place of magic and malice 
and ignorance, where faith healing is medical care and government enforcers dress like Klansmen. Now, I know I sound crazy, like this is the plot of a dystopian dark fantasy novel that would appeal to fans of Neil Gaiman. And indeed, that's how I had to get my story out, by teaming up with writer Matthew Warner. He published my first person account as a novel called Empire of the Goddess. Publishers Weekly called it quick-paced and intriguing. Can you believe that? But he let me record the audiobook, because only I can tell you my story. And it's gonna blow your mind. Look for it on Amazon and at MatthewWarner.com. Empire of the Goddess. And we're back. Okay, so Cody had, Brother Cody had a question for Joe. So Cody, go for it. Well, this is more like a, a, a open form question, but did you guys ever have a point, you know, like as people who I would venture to say, none of us are complete dumbasses. You know what I mean? I no way, shape or form proclaim to be, you know, smarter than everyone else, but I, I have some intellect about me. Like I, I have a deeper level of thinking, but was there ever a point before you started to realize that you're probably a little bit more intelligent than the average person where you would, you would be around a group of people and you would tell a joke and they're all just sitting there kind of looking at you, like not getting it. And you sit there and you think to yourself, wow, I really thought that was funny. And then as you get a little older and you start expanding the group of people you hang out with and you realize like, oh, no, it was funny. They just weren't smart enough to understand the joke. Yeah, the nuance of it. Yeah, yeah the nuances of the joke or how there, there's an underlining. You have to be able to understand this mm. to understand the humor over here. Did that ever happen to any of you guys? Yes. And I don't yeah. mean math jokes. It's. <laughs> I mean, my sense of humor leaves much to be desired, so I can't always relate. But um, yeah, I mean, I think... <clears throat> look, the more you read, the more you, you know, associate with people of that ilk. Yeah. I think it's just right. Like osmosis, things are naturally going to kind of seep in. Um, like when I was in New York, for example, you know, New Yorkers especially have this kind of wit about them, you know, it's just there. Um, it's just a little bit sharper, you know, um, and then you go to other places and it's, it's not as much. And, and maybe the sense of humor that, that the snark, if you will, which I don't always like, to be honest, it doesn't carry at all, you know? Um, like I remember going to Canada once and I feel like Canadians love fart jokes. I, I don't know. I never, like, <laughs> I'm not like a big fart South joke Park guy. All the time. They do. And Trailer okay. Park Boys. Yeah. Okay. It's so I, I, I think so, it comes down to curiosity. Um, I, I think that's the differentiator. Um, all of the people that I know or that I used to know that would fall into the I don't want to say I'm smarter than they are, but I find them less entertaining or less um, engaging. less engaging, less of a dynamic conversation. They don't have any curiosity, right? They they take things at face value. They they're not interested in in learning a lot more. Um, I think it just comes down to to curiosity, and I think that's an innate quality in people. Um, you're either a curious soul or you're not. Um, mm. I don't think that's something that can be learned or it can be nurtured, but it's not something that like, if you're 40 years old and you realize you're a dullard, you're not going to go, you know, read, you know, curiosity for dummies or, you know, and learn how to be, learn how to be curious in 30 days, right? <laughs> you're not going to go, 
you're not going to go learn that skill. It can be fostered in young children, but once you get above a certain point, it, it's just, it's, it's very hard to, to inculcate curiosity in a mature individual. So it's just people, some people have a desire to, they just want to know more than other people. Well, want to I know. think so. Well, yeah. think about the fact that what do we do? We challenge each other at the beginning of the year to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And we all, we all three accomplished it. And it was not a big deal. You know, we all did, you know, reading books, write an article, you know, study. And other people think that's stupid. I mean, like I said, what we were talking about off the air, a lot of people in my age group and younger, and you know, because Cody's a little younger than us, not by much, but he's a little younger than us. But in our age bracket, they're playing video games. I'm reading a book. I don't have, I don't play video games. If I have that kind of free time, I'm reading a book. Or like I said, I'm interacting with my wife <laughs> because that's a more fun game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to leave that well, one. Be. You know, I love you, Lee. Yeah. But that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's where Shout it out is. To Lee. Lee. <laughs> we, you know, because I'm curious. I'm reading. I've, I've got books now. I'm. We've, we've we've actually challenged each other to read books. We're all reading. We share books that we read. Uh, we share books back and forth. Uh, right now, I'm reading just for more for my enjoyment. Matt Best book. Thank you for my Thank service. Thank you for my service. Yep. Because uh, he, you know, Airborne Ranger. He's a part owner of Black Rifle Coffee, and he's just a funny guy. So I'm reading his book, and it's it's funny, and it's. You know, there's a lot in it, but it's, you know, funny. But I read Dan Crenshaw's book, you know, uh, which was amazing. And I read, I read constantly. I have a whole ra- rather extensive library and I got books piled up that I haven't finished yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a bibliophile. I love to yeah. buy books. Yeah. So I've got a ton of books that I haven't finished either. I'm going to read that. Uh, yeah. Let me buy this one here too. Exactly. One day. Yeah, exactly. So Joe, let's so let let let's um let's talk podcast for a little bit. Yeah. So you have a podcast. It's uh, Scholars and Iron. Um, I just noticed something the other day that your logo for Scholars and Iron looks an awful lot like the cover of Sun and Steel by Yukio Mishima. Is that a uh, is that a coincidence? That is not copyright infringement. I'll have you know, but yeah, no, it is. So um, there's a cool um. So he has a play called The Patriot, and it's yes. a very well-known silhouette of him kneeling down with Katana in front of him, right? And the back is the rising sun. So what I just simply did was just put my logo blasphemously over the rising sun and just sort of darkened the outline and kind of, you know, made it into more of like a cartoon-like image. Um, I did that. A little part of it was a little bit spite. Part of it was just because I felt cool. Um, the spite part was because, again, um, even though I would say I'm more, you know, politically progressive, politically on, on the left, that probably comes out pretty obvious on the on the podcast. Um, you know, I really do admire this guy. Um, I just think his ideas, his his the way he's able to spin metaphor. I mean, you know, I just find his works incredible. And so for a lot of lefties, uh, for example, the article that you uh, fished out, um, you know, was it a fascist in the weight room? Yeah. I mean, I, like, okay, I get, get it. So written by someone who clearly doesn't lift and clearly yeah. has no interest in the message, which is really trying to explore oneself 
as a sensorium of the body as as the author put it you know like to explore yourself beyond just simply you know word writing something or poetry i mean to me i think sun and steel really is that and so i like you know innately identify with that because i myself going through my own kind of ongoing transformation just felt the same way as as mishima did maybe not quite as grandeur as mishima but that's kind of where the logo sort of came out and uh yeah in many ways i just you know went with it it's it's a great logo i i i don't know i don't exactly remember where i first found scholars and iron it either either nathan farnsworth our buddy steel jans from barbarian rhetoric who we're all writers on the barbarian rhetoric um page it's run by a, a gentleman um his screen name is steel jans his his actual name is is nathan farnsworth um but he has a, a host of men authors who talk about being men he, i don't want to say it's a red pill community it's not it, it stretches beyond that but you know we talk about masculinity and how to be better men and better husbands better, better husbands better fathers that sort of thing sure. e- either he had your podcast listed in his podcast role which he has mentioned that he did feature you in one of his barge corner corner roll-ups um either i found it there or it was like suggested for you in my podcast aggregator and (laughs) the the title scholars and iron really caught my attention because um, one way back in the early 2000s, the, the testosterone nation, the guys at tmag.com, their uh, head editor, TC Luoma, had this article on uh, warrior nerds mm-hmm. and basically talking about people who are involved in strength culture or, you know, powerlifting, bodybuilding should also have intellectual goals as well. Um, and then, which, so that was very interesting. And then Joe Rogan, when he talks about jujitsu guys, he refers to us as cerebral. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, nerd assassins. But he also uh, about being a cerebral. Being, yes. Being, Be, because, being cerebral ninjas and being the whole thinking. Yeah. He refers to jujitsu as high level problem solving with dire consequences. Yeah. So, um, your podcast caught my eye because it seemed to echo those two things that I'm very interested in. I've been a member of, you know, back when it was testosterone.com and T nation and tmag.net. I've been a member of that message board since like 1998, um, way back. Um, so that's what initially drew me to your podcast you describe your podcast as exploring the relationship between physical strength and intellectual fortitude. What made you decide to start a podcast that explored the different, um, the different strata of strength culture? Because you got, you've done episodes on the Basque rural sports in, in, in the Basque area of Spain You've done um, the local strength training gyms here in the Shando Valley of Virginia, um, especially in the Roanoke area. You've had on uh, doctors talking about the tie-in between suicide 
and lifting and how one can prevent the other. You've also had a Muay Thai, a female Muay Thai fighter who used Muay Thai to take control of her life after traumatic um, experiences. What made you decide to start this podcast and try to portray um, being involved in a strength culture as not only a physical attribute, but also an intellectual endeavor? Yeah. So, um, so as I was saying before with, uh, with Mike, he's, he was such a, a big podcast guy. And uh, prior to August of 2019, I, maybe I listened to a few Joe Rogan episodes. That's about it. And he says, you know, you should, you should start one. I'm like, all right, well, I wasn't really sure what to talk about, but a lot of it sort of became more sort of a bit more evident as I was sort of, you know, ending my academic tenure, my academic career, and uh, realizing that I didn't really have a, a community. I, I didn't, I was unmoored from the kind of, you know, the sort of dark intellectuals that, of Mishima's world, where all they do is stay up late at night, you know, do drugs, read poetry, and then, you know, sleep until 12. So I was unmoored from that existence. Um, on the other hand, right, I wasn't really interested in just a, a kind of like a pure, almost, you know, kind of stereotypical, right, meathead life. I don't think that really exists, actually. I think, you know, that's really more of like a nerd perspective of it, of jocks. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure where to go. You know, I know you can't just show up to a gym and start saying like, hey, what do you guys think of, you know, Nietzsche's concept of Ubermensch? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and at the same token, like, you know, you're going up to God, it's like, yeah, like, so what do you think of conjugate training to like, you know, philosophy grad students? So um, I figured, you know what, I need to kind of, you know, set my sails high, you know, signal somebody out there, even if it's just like one person or two other people, and I'll just start talking. And if something begins to stick, you know, then why not? And as I kind of explored, you know, the gym scene, I, I, I started profiling a few gyms in like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and getting involved in powerlifters there and realizing that, yeah, similar to you all, you know, there's a lot of like fascinating people there and, and they have this sort of monk-like dedication to their craft that for me was just, I felt, especially in the modern world where things are always sort of, um, I don't know, things are, are never steady or fixed, right? Like, for example, to quote Marx, okay, he says, you know, um, everything that is solid eventually kind of dissolves. And so everything is, is sort of moving quickly. You know, we have our attention spans, the whole dopamine hits. I mean, nothing seems steady. And so for me, training kind of grounded myself a little bit more. And I wanted to kind of talk about the phenomena. What is it about training, for example? Right, not, not just exercise, which, you know, is what every American, you know, does when we feel guilty eating cake over the weekend or something like that. Oh, nothing wrong with it, of course. I mean, hell, people should exercise. But training is different. Training is unpleasant. Training is brutal. It's not fun. Like today, for example, <clears throat> I did, you know, I do conjugate style powerlifting. So we, we did, um, my coach, I did a uh, max effort squat and deadlift. Like it's not fun. Halfway through, I'm like, my CNS is fried. Like I want to fucking stop, you know, like I'm in pain. Your but hands you are shaking and you're just ready. I'm not having a good time. You know, I'm trying to like choke down some water. And so, but there's something about that that grounds me a lot closer to a community that I feel I can kind of express myself more with um, than simply folks who, you know, read and, and do poetry. And I, of course, I love all those things, 
but it's easy to open up a book in your pajamas laying on the bed and then closing it, right? You can't, you go to the gym, you better fucking show up and doing some damage or else why bother at all? So I think kind of those two worlds sort of collide, you know, uh, for me. And and that's why I just kept going and talking to more people and, you know, meeting uh, folks like Swede Burns, for example, he's a powerful, he's also an accomplished poet. He's up in Pittsburgh. Um, Dude was in, you know, uh, some serious stuff. He, you know, paid his dues. He went to prison, um, but a real intellectual and a real humble guy and a devout Christian as well. So you meet people like that and you're like, oh, this is great. You know, I wonder if there's more folks out there like that, you know? Did did he read some stuff on one of your episodes? Yeah, he read from yeah. his first published book of poets, uh, poems, yeah, that's right. That, those, yeah, and he was, oh God, the, the one that he read on your show, he was talking to, it was like he was talking to a girlfriend who had left him. It was very powerful stuff, if I remember properly. Yeah, I wish I had better audio that day. Um, it was good. Yeah. You, the audio, we're going to talk about that here in a minute, but um, I'm sorry, please continue. No, no, no. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I invite him. And, you know, the thing is, he's always being asked about, oh, what's your fifth set method? And how do you do powerless? What are your accessories? And, of course, these are questions I'm interested in, too. But sometimes I want to, like, okay, put down the weights. Like, who are you as an intellectual? Who are you as a thinking man, right? And, and I think to that point too, I try to have as best as I can a, um, a gender balance because I think that, you know, I have as many women as I have on as men because, you know, strength training is, is really powerlifting, especially Olympic lifting. I mean, if it wasn't for women, I think it would still be a kind of like a smaller community. I mean, women have exploded the sport um, tremendously. So I do have, try to have, you know, that perspective as well. Um, and I, and I think also when you, when you speak to women in those, in the realm of powerlifting, um, obviously they have their own issues about creepy guys in the gym, but also you can just relate to them as lifters. Like, okay, you're a woman, I'm a guy, we both like lifting. We can both associate like that. And it kind of breaks down some of that hypersensitivity mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of malignant in society these days between men and women. Um, and so for me, I think strength was just sort of a great community to talk about all these different issues through the podcast so so joe i have a question for you so what is it that you feel keeps drawing you back to that next workout workout after workout especially when you were talking about earlier how your central nervous system is just fried you know it's not always fun you don't always enjoy it and i i I think it's fair to say we don't always enjoy everything that we enjoy every single time that we do it but because for me, there's something about that, that pain, that, that suffering that I enjoy, you know what I mean? Yeah, like when my, creepy, when yeah. my, it's weird, yeah. but like when my calluses are ripped open, you know, when I've got, you know, maybe snot coming out of my nose, I'm, I, my eyes are leaking, you know, I feel like I'm going to puke. I'm, sh- I, I'm kind of shaking, you know what I mean? My hands are shaking my forms are shaking. Cause there's so much blood flowing through them you know where I, I do a, that set and then I, I stand up and I've got to grab onto something because I'm lightheaded there's something about that maybe I have an addictive personality I'm not entirely sure maybe there's something about pain that makes me feel alive I'm not sure because I en- everything that you were just saying just now you're like I don't I don't enjoy that piece of it so I guess it's a twofold question like if you don't enjoy it what have you found in your self-discovery that keeps drawing you back to it? And, and, you know, why do you think you keep coming back? 
Yeah, brother. I mean, I, I think for all the reasons that you gave, there, there's something about, um, and, and this is maybe a bit of a cliche to answer, but I, I think it's cliche because it's true. Like, I think as right athletes or sportsmen, it's like, you know, you love to shatter limits for yourself. Um, there's something about that where, I mean, the way I look at it is, look, I, I have but one mortal life to live. Mm-hmm. Am I going to do it, you know, wasting away, you know, drinking an IPA on the couch, you know, watching whatever, or could I be using that time to make myself physically stronger mm-hmm. to the point where in five years from now, if I can deadlift X amount of pounds or squat X amount of pounds, I would be happier for it. Even if it causes injury, you know, even if it causes fatigue, even if it causes, you know, social stress too. I mean, I'll be honest, my first years of lifting, I, I didn't talk to too many friends. I was so into that moment um, because I, I just, I wanted to get out of this sort of, this sort of cultural malaise that I've kind of ingested like everything else. I mean, even with like Instagram and stuff, not to go on a rant here, but like sometimes- Please like, why, rant. Yeah, why, go, like, go, why, go, go. why do I even have this? Like what, what's for me with Instagram, it's like, why the fuck do I have this stuff? Like, I don't care about, you know, whatever fitness influencers out there showing her booty or for a guy, it's whatever his vascularity. It's like, I don't, I don't care. You know, um, I, I just, for me, it's like, I just want to be able to, you know, destroy myself and then kind of, you know, rebuild back my muscle fibers stronger and do it naturally. Right. I don't, I don't do stuff like testing. It's like that, that, what's the point in doing that? That's not challenging yourself. That's just, Hey, I have this much money inject a few things, take a few pills. Like I want to generate, you know, enough testosterone to, to keep me going because I'll be honest, um, you know, I'm going to be 37 soon. And a lot of guys my age, man, it's like they're 20 years older in many yes. ways. Yeah. You know? And at the same token, guys who I see powerlifting who are 20 years older feel like they're 20 years younger than they are. You know, there's something just incredible about hormones and testosterone and boosting it. I don't get why our society is so afraid of that. You know, like even with the whole body positivity thing, like I think it's, it's, there's a lot of cool stuff about it. Like women you know, with muscles, great, awesome. Like I'm all for it, the aesthetic, great. At the same token, the question of obesity, um, yeah. you know, accept me because I'm obese and don't make fun of me. It's like, look, I was a fat kid, <laughs> you know, growing up, like, you know, even as a powerlifter, I'm kind of like a fat kid, you know, <laughs> but I'm 245 pounds. But I mean, you know, yeah, but you don't look 245. Well, we're like, looking at like upper chest. Yeah, but I've, I've seen other. <laughs> I'm just yeah, wait, wait, wait until you get below. It's just, it's just like this bulb. How tall are you? I, I'm 5'11. Oh, okay. Are you a bulldozer? Yeah. My coach is, is six, six. The man's 450 pounds. I mean, I can, I can see it in your neck and your traps, yeah. how you're built. Like you show me a guy's neck and traps. Yeah. Like even a meth head can have abs, but it takes a badass to have traps. Like uh, yeah. true. Well, I got a tonight my from spots are my weak spots are definitely my neck and my uh, my forearms. I, I bought rippers recently, you know, from a rip sport. Yeah. So I'm always trying to work on it. But that's the thing too is like, see, I look at myself and I say, like, oh my god, I'm such a physical horror. I'm like, yeah, I could do some work. Like I could always look better. I could always feel yeah. stronger. Versus. Because at one point it was like this, like when I was kind of, you know, getting a little bit chunky here, right before I was lifting. I mean, I remember one point I was talking to my mother and she was kind of almost like lamenting about how I looked. And I remember for that, that really dark, sensitive moment I had, I said, well, why don't you just accept me for who I am? And I thought to myself, 
wow, that's really pathetic that I said that. You know, like looking back at that, it's like I'm demanding that your aesthetics like match my reality. I'm like, no, it's not fair. Like there's something about the door of forest in ancient Greek art where you see like this this chiseled body. It's like that like is cauliflower ear and <laughs> yeah. Yes. But there's like this eternal masculine physique that goes back for well over a thousand years. Like that's not going away. That no. that's attractive. People want to look like that, you know, like that's just something that I feel that men and women can really aspire to. So um I don't even know how this even got brought up, honestly, guys. But like for me, that's like a big thing. It's like I do not accept obesity as a legit status in our society. It's like if you're obese, like by all means, get some help. Well, well it's he's fun. It's it's funny you brought that up. I talked to him. We were talking, talking about, about this earlier, earlier. but it's funny. I, I looked into this and went down the rabbit hole a little bit because I read your I read that comic strip uh, and stuff and. Uh, I went down the rabbit hole and it's funny, a lot of these same magazines and writers that are now saying accept people, if even if they're obese and saying this woman who weighs 400 pounds or this guy who weighs 500 pounds, all that's healthy, are the same people less than a decade ago. I, I found some of these writers actually were also saying that if you weigh this much, you should face, should pay a fat tax because you're killing our healthcare system. system. So they went from a decade from you are killing our healthcare system. We can't afford it. You should pay a fat tax. And now saying, oh, well, now nah, well, you're, you're good. That's we should swing. accept, we, you should just swings. accept everybody for the way they are. So I, I can get to, to the body positivity yeah. whole thing, right? If, if you want to say I'm, you know, my 600 pound life or whatever it is, like I am technically obese and you're okay with that. I am okay. I am good. I'm saying, okay with you being okay. Yes, I'm not going to bully you. Exactly. I'm not going to bully you. But the the Your life ain't fabulous. Right. But, the but, current the the current push in media, and it's been insidious. It like I think it was Vogue. I, I think it was Vogue had some that had her on there. Really, yeah. some very plus size models, and and it was this is healthy. It, it's it's where they're trying to equate being what is technically obese, whether you believe in, I think BMI is bullshit because that math just doesn't work. It's old math. Oh, yeah. It, well, it, if you've got, it assumes a particular percentage of body fat, right? If you have less than that, then the, the numbers go out the window, right? Like I'm obese according to BMI, yeah. right? I'm super obese. Yeah, well, <laughs> No, you shouldn't. But you anyway, should, brother. <laughs> but more the, the problem is when you it, it's one thing to say we accept you as a human being and we believe that you you know should have dignity and be treated yeah, you equally. Be to the you point shouldn't where be bullied about right? suicide. Yeah. That's, That's one fine. thing. I can go, you know, cut. We're good there. But as soon as you go, this is healthy. That's not it's scary. That's a lie. You're it, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's absolutely a it's lie. It's telling someone that that they don't have to worry about the health consequences later in their life. Yeah, 20 mm. years old, 25 years old, being overweight might not be that big of a deal 
But wait till you hit 35 or 40 oh, and, and your insulin and your pancreas dies says, and you can't make insulin anymore. Your, your really heart gives up. Is on the other side of that. We were talking about the mass monsters yeah. earlier. Yeah. You would look at yeah. those guys and people who don't yeah. know. I mean, steroids yeah. have become more of a pop culture thing. People have a better understanding of them. But there was a time where people thought that those guys were just freaks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there were times people were like, well, I want to be like them. Windler at the time, right? Joe Windler was pushing the narrative that all right. those guys were natural, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I but mean, that's you not had... healthy either. No, no. it's not. You know, Absolutely not. People love people love a freak show, and whether you want to yeah. call it a freak show or not, my six hundred pound life that is a freak show. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, this is no disrespect to her, but there is absolutely nothing healthy about that lifestyle. And the same thing with these bodybuilding mass monsters. There's a I, line where it's not healthy. I go back to what I said earlier. Not healthy. If you can't wipe your own ass or tie your own shoes, you're not healthy. Well, they're essentially, <laughs> Jay, Jay Cutler even said, yeah, he has even said that he pervert, preferred his physique at a smaller mm-hmm. frame than what it became. Yeah. He only became what he became in order to win Olympia. Yeah. That was his goal, so he did what he had to do. But he, at one point, he said he couldn't walk across his living room without getting out of breath. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. He said, I'm basically an uh, overweight, fat kid with muscle. Well, did, Joe, do you remember, you remember Flex Wheeler? Yeah, of course, sure. Okay, okay, yeah. Flex, we, I mean, he was a smaller dude, right? And he was always going up against Ronnie Coleman. But that's also the golden era, which is still slightly. <laughs> no, that was not the golden era. The golden era was fucking Lee Labrada and all the guys. Probably Frank Zane. Frank Columbo. Zane. Yeah, Columbo. Yeah, even Flex Wheeler wasn't on Coleman's level. He, he was he competing was, against Coleman. I though. know, but he wasn't. Well, he was a smaller guy. Was he it, was shorter. Yeah. His his bone yeah. his bone density was a little Coleman, different. He says that he wasn't even doing. Early, oh, horseshit! Like, early on, he said he didn't do as much as the other guys. Horseshit. Anyway, um, but if another you, conversation, yeah, total other conversation. But um, yeah, Flex Wheeler, you know, he's to, to Jerry's you know comment about not being able to wipe your ass or tie your shoes when he was getting ready for um, the Olympia. He had this thing that he called the lazy boy. And basically it was, he would get the lazy boy and rock back and his wife would jump on top. And that was how they had marital Congress because he didn't have the, the, the cardio to do anything else. Wow. Is that what oh it was? God. Or was it a blood flow issue? Ah, it could be both. He said, he Mexican, said cardio, but whatever. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So this is what happens we go on these like wild tangents i have a question so hopefully this is in line with the flow of conversation but you chose not to uh have any alcohol tonight because you're currently in training or on a protocol what what are you training for what are you do you have a competition you know let's talk and what's your protocol looking like let's talk about that yeah yeah so um yeah to keep the long story short so uh just um well we'll talk about the documentary um later but um just after that when i was up in jersey doing it uh february march uh i was deadlifting and i had this uh, severe pain shooting to my knee uh both knees and at that point i'm like oh god here we go and um i was just out i couldn't really do much couldn't really squat couldn't really deadlift then COVID happened and all the gyms you know in virginia at least at that point were closed for a while up until about june up by yep. me so i was sort of out of the game and i realized that i had quad tendonitis um so i had to figure out how to rehab that and just all these little small injuries that you know from stupid lifting 
Um, so it wasn't up until the summer when I started to kind of, you know, get back into training and it was pretty unorganized. I was doing conjugate before, but it's kind of hard to do conjugate if you don't have a coach. And I'm, I'm, I still consider myself fairly novice at the sport. Um, so I, uh, I got back into it, found, uh, a great gym in uh, Manassas called Dominion Barbell, which actually is also right next to a Dominion Jiu Jitsu. Um, and so there's a lot of cross. We'll have to come see you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, it's it's a cool little cool facility. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, I I tend to I'm not like a big drinker anyway. I, I kind of slowed down when I got more into shape and just lifting in general. Um, so that's always kind of been there anyway. Like I quit smoking last year, just cold turkey and then alcohol. No, then what? There. There's um there's a competition up in uh, Atlantic City actually that one of the gyms that I'm, I'm friendly with the owner is running uh, on Reese Skiba and it's also linked to like the Mr. Natural Bodybuilding thing. So he says, oh, you should okay, compete. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought, um, yeah, why not? It's in October. It's probably enough time to get my lifts up and uh, and do that. My in terms of my protocol though, yeah. So it's it's just three days. Um, it's three brutal days. It's, uh, it's a variety of, of what's called uh, dynamic work and max effort work. So in the whole West side, like, you know, Louis Simmons yep. conjugates, mm -hmm. um, the mad scientist, work. Louis. Exactly. I love this documentary. Um, he's yeah, that's a badass documentary. Um, and so basically I do dynamic work, speed day, very lightweight, high volume, high repetition, um, where I just focus on like a breakdown of the squat, for example, and then I'll do that with a bench press and then deadlift and I have max effort. And again, it's sort of a breakdown of it. So bench press won't just be a free form bench press. It'll be like a pin press or I'll have a block on my chest and push from the block to basically work the different mechanical weak spots of the lift. And so mm -hmm. I think for most lifters for a squat, for example, you know, it's usually the hamstring getting out of hole from the squat that tends to be a weak point. Uh, for bench, it could be either the bottom right at the chest or in the lockout. So then mm -hmm. you have to figure out what you do there. So it's kind of like a living, breathing methodology, as a lot of the conjugate guys will talk about. So I like conjugate and also just the history of it too is just super badass. I mean, it's, you know, basically the Soviets developed it when they really had nothing. Like all the Americans were doing all the steroids and it was York barbell and, you know, they just sort of were lazy. The Russians were like super disciplined, like we're going to like beat these Yanks. Also <laughs> Also, yeah, both are on steroids for sure. Yeah, their programming was better. Oh, of course it was. You know, the programming was was very scientific. They just didn't too. have like the wealth that Americans had. And the government um, was like, so oh, they really had to start from right the post-war era of just Soviets being decimated by the Nazis. Um, so they developed this incredible weightlifting system that that Bud Charniga, who I had on the on the show, he's up in Michigan, had basically translated, brought over these documents from Russia, translated them into English. And that's kind of the start of conjugate. So um, to me, I think it's it's the superior. I'm kind of a snob. I, I like this superior. <laughs> Powerlifting is conjugate. I think there's a lot of other great programs, but I think conjugate is really for the lifter who wants to break plateaus and really take their lifting to the, to the next level. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm doing right now. I could change my mind in two years, but for now, I love it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if you've had a chance to go back and, and check out this episode, but Jerry and I, a a couple of episodes ago did a uh, kind of a roundup of our personal heroes. And one of the ones that I covered was Dave Tate. Oh yeah. Dave Tate. Yeah. Yeah. From the, from ETFS. And he was one of, you know, Louis like really you know, deep in guys. And we talked about some of, of Louis rules for the gym, you know, don't, 
don't date hookers and don't do crack and you know all that kind of stuff so i've actually basic yeah ba- basic, basic stuff basic stuff i like hookers and cocaine yeah, so Just does john stuff. jones but that's a whole other story <laughs> um but i actually i actually got to meet dave tate um sure. yeah so tell me about that Okay, so back in, oh shit, it was the early 2000s when T Nation was like really, really big um, before they had their whole dust up with CrossFit. That's a whole nother story. But um, they did what was called the DC Test Fest. And it was all the guys from Testosterone Nation and they did a two-day strength training kind of seminar in um in washington dc and we did it at like the crown plaza in dc and it was uh, tc luoma was there chris shugart did a, a presentation alwyn cosgrove did a, a prezo um trying to think who else was there but the, the like the capstone speaker was dave tate oh cool That's dope. and so that was like during the actual session, but the night before he literally ordered a shit ton of beer and brought it down to the lounge in the ho- in the, the hotel, like the lounge area in the lobby and did a live Q and a with everybody who was there. And it didn't matter like what your question was. If you had a question for Dave Tate, like he was there, his it, yeah, it was it was pretty badass. Dave is I've got a, an autographed copy of his uh, book under the bar um, and some other stuff from him. But yeah, Dave Tate was he was just he was fucking awesome. And, and you know, he's a Louis guy from way back. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, honestly, even on Instagram, like when he still had his handle and was more active. I mean, he would take like direct message requests. And I used to like hit him up like several times. And like, God bless him. Like he was always so patient with all my questions, but he would answer them as opposed to some like, you know, fit influencer who doesn't give a shit. They're just selling their like, you know, bullshit tea. And he's still, I mean, if you look, he's still doing, he's still doing it. Right. I mean, he was on IG the other day doing like a ridiculous box squat and he's in his fucking sixties. Is he really? Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, he's, he's in his sixties. If you want to see a really interesting article or, or a series of articles, go back to T Nation and do a search on, I think it's called the Dave Tate Project. Huh. And it was probably 10 years ago, but like he wanted to kind of get shredded a little bit. And he got hooked up with um, Thibodeau. Um, oh, yeah, right. He got hooked up with Thibodeau and Thibodeau basically shredded his ass for like eight or 12 weeks. And it's amazing what those two guys did together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's a very, like, I feel like he embodies like a Midwesterner, like he's down to earth. Yeah. White. There's no elitist snobbery with this guy. And he also has like just profound nuggets. Like he has that whole thing, like into the void. It's on YouTube. It's like kind of like a, a motivational video. Yeah. Like he describes what it's like in the moment when you're, you're doing a max effort lift and your mind just goes blank. And at that moment, you're in this sort of absolute, you know, Zen-like state, you know, but the way he describes it with words and metaphor, it's like, you just, you get it 
because you do it. It's like with Mishima, right? Like if you don't train, if you don't do those things, you're not going to understand the sun and steel. Like that one author, um, that you, that you, the article, the fascist in the weight room, like she does not yeah. understand what that's like. And I'm sure for you all, it's the same thing with jujitsu and other, you know, uh, mixed martial arts too. They're just moments in time where it's just, you have to fall back on some baser instinct that you, yeah, yeah you, you hit and, and I, you know, I think Rogan talks about about flow state, right? It's something similar to flow state. Um, I think in jujitsu, it's more akin to flow state um, because Jerry and I'll be rolling or Cody and I'll be rolling, right? And there's a point where your brain just kind of disconnects. And it's not that you're going through the motions. It's just that you're letting your motor engrams take over and you're you're going almost instinctually and it's a completely different level and it's very similar to what tate talks about in the flow state or i'm sorry in um in enter the void it's very similar but it's it's like the dark negative of flow state right because flow state's kind of i don't want to say it's an active thing but obviously jiu-jitsu is is a little bit more dynamics not the right word but it's the one no, i think it use. is there, no. yeah you're, um, you're moving you're flowing for sure i mean that's- yeah so so we're you know kind of shifting and working on that where enter the void is it's like the the, the dark negative of a flow state it's where you're focused on this one thing and everything else goes away and that's where you are and everything else just dissolves away you know there's something there's something for me like we live in a very soft time in history it is what and i'm not i mean i'm not attacking anybody there are people that are soft it is what it is you know what i mean and there you can debate that all day long but there's something very primitive i think that comes into play there's a there's either you succeed in your hunt for whatever you're hunting or you fail Right. You know what I mean? And there was a time in history where your success with a hunt meant you got to eat and your family got to eat or you didn't. Like there's a lot of times like I'll be a little hungry. I'll go to the gym a little hungry or I'll come and train and be a little hungry. And I find that like it it stimulates like a heightened sense of things. I've actually I've actually that's what I do now. Yeah, I don't eat past noon before I come and train. Yeah. So that it's it's more of I think it's a mental thing, but it it's like that gatherer. It's instinct. like I find that if I don't if I don't I eat my lunch at noon, I eat, well actually I eat at eleven o'clock, and from then on I don't eat anything else, and I come in here, and it's like there's a different kind of hunger. There are times I will and I, I don't will eat come after day. you guys. Yeah, I come like, out and I find that well, it sounds like it, it builds that fire. It's like when is we is that when why you hit my ear that one yeah. night? Now I understand. You were, you were feeling my legs tonight, so let's calm down. That was a nibble. He was no. he was cupping my legs tonight. Let's just let's, let's back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That all might sound a little hoodooy, but I, it's just like I almost no, no. It's not hoodooy at all. I feel, you know, when I'm under that bar doing a heavy squat, like you said, like there's a consequence to not getting that lift. You know, whether it's ego, whether it's or you, you get stapled, or you get stapled you collapse you know what i mean and you've got to live with whatever that failure is there's so many people that are so 
they're literally afraid yeah. of failure. You know I, what I mean? So they never do they never anything. Try. They don't go after anything. Well, think about, I, I work 11 or 12 hours a day and I come in here or I go home and then I start swinging the kettlebells and the mace yeah. around. Most, most, most of my peers work eight hours a day, then go home and watch TV or play yeah. video games. Jerk off mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. That, that's what my wife is doing. <laughs> that's what i think about with with modern technology i mean it's just you know we have this amazing technology the same token it's being used for what instagram i mean a lot of a lot of things that are yeah. just entertainment right i mean tv too like look i'm i'm as anyone else like yeah sure hell i got netflix amazon all that stuff but yeah at the same token it's just like yeah we're like there's this progressive regime of just like technological detritus that we're just constantly being hooked on and fed. And so for me, I think, and for you all too, I see as well, training is something that my God, it's like, I wish I could do more of it, but my body can only allow so much. Yeah. Well, there's, there's that old saying that the average man lives a quiet life of desperation. Right. And you were talking about this earlier, right? It's, and it comes back to our discussion about curiosity, right? People who are curious or not curious. There, there are people who are quite happy to sit on the couch and let that void scream in their face, right? And they just ignore it. And there are other people who are not willing to live that life of quiet desperation. And they want to try to, try to um, you know, strive for something more and that's kind of why we're here in jiu-jitsu you know you you said what you're 36 yeah yeah 36 yeah i mean you're 33 33 i'm 44 jerry's 44 44 right and you mentioned it earlier with your your you know um your powerlifting compatriots right they're 44 they're in their 50s or whatever they don't look it they don't feel it I look back at, you know, the, the folks that I went to high school with who are my age yeah. and they're, they're happy staring into that screaming void. They look 20 years older than me. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a good book by this, this German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk. It's a uh, title of a, a poem by Rilke. I think it's called, you must change your life. I find it a bit dense to read personally, um, but he basically is looking at how to explain theology as a series of progressions of the body itself. So one thing is that, you know, man has this base instinct to do jackal, right? I mean, think about early hunter and gather societies. If you look at like the caloric dating on some of these bones that they dig up, you know, they'll consume as much calories so that they can pass out. And then the next day they'll go out and hunt and, and gather more. But there was always this expansive leisure time where they just simply sat around and did nothing. I mean, maybe they had sex or they did stuff like that or whatever, played games. But, you know, I think today it's like mankind faces the same challenge of like staring boredom in the face. And, and so in many ways, he felt that the call for modern theology was a call to like materially, physically, spiritually do something about it, right? Like get your ass up, do something, you know, submit to an idea, submit to a, a greater entity. And in doing so, submit your body as well to something that doesn't require you just simply like laying around and not doing anything. Um, so that's, that's interesting. And, and we, in our circles that the three of us operate in um, on social media and, you know, some of the other areas that we, that we 
and you kind of operate in. Um, it, there's the concept of do hard things, right? And I'm sure you've you've heard that uh, in your various social medias. The the interesting thing is that theory about um, you know, Neolithic man, right? In order for them to go out and hunt and and get that caloric intake in order to be able to chill and you know hang out around the fire and not do anything they had to undergo or or take on a lot higher risk mm. than what we have in our modern society to get that same caloric load yeah, right they, they eat, yeah you they had, on your phone exactly well they didn't always know when they were going to eat again exactly either. it's easy yeah. for us to eat but right they had to go hunt you know, the, the the stereotype right that they, they had to go hunt the saber-toothed tiger or the woolly mammoth or right their food could have killed them if they fucked up right sorry a mcdonald's cheeseburger ain't gonna kill me no my, it's killing you oh it's killing you right but it's it's but, not gonna yeah, take the classic fork and stick it in my jugular um you know, my, my straight arm bar not, might not be that good from guard, but mm-hmm. a, a, a hamburger is not going to kill me. You're put into a busting cabin, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the, the interesting thing is, you know, that theory about, you know, the proto-man, they had to undergo so much more risk to True. get that caloric intake that now we can get that same caloric intake for the fractional risk. So what we have to do in order to satisfy our primordial mammalian desires is to actually go out and find risk. And is it, you know, what's the risk? Is it, you know, Jerry choking the shit out of me or Cody arm barring me, or is it you trying to deadlift 500 pounds, right? Because we still have, regardless of where we are and all the technology and all the other stuff, right? We still have that base mammalian programming and either we totally ignore it and we stare into the screaming void of quiet desperation, or we try to satisfy it through external means, which I think is kind of where you are and where we are in our various strength culture endeavors. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good counterpoint. I uh, hadn't really thought about that. It reminds me, though, of, uh, I remember, like, I don't really watch a whole lot of, like, children's movies, I promise, but, like, there's that, that opening scene in Wally, where, <laughs> yes, yeah. remember, and humanity has now, you know, we've, we've degenerated to the state where we're just on these floating chairs, and we have, yeah. like, one little robot doing all the labor, right? I mean, there, there's something about that where it's like, my God, it's like, especially with COVID and lockdowns, I mean, we're, we're facing the kind of, you know, physical abyss in some ways. Um, just, you know, trying to, you know, I don't know, alleviate boredom and stuff like that. I mean, you know, there is something about risk. There's something about death as well. Um, I think, you know, man wanted to confront death. It's a very kind of Nietzschean Heidegger talks about this, you know, because again, with, with modern culture, we don't have any sort of fixed route for us. We have to kind of make that on our own. And in some ways it could be very chaotic, you know, back, back in the medieval period and all that stuff, people knew exactly where their place was in society, whether they liked it or not. And today we have this sort of amorphous design where we have to kind of pick it. It could be stressful, you know, for the most part, um, or it could be glorious. Depends on how you look at it, I guess. 
So let's um, let's take that as a as a good place to move on and um, talk about your your uh, documentary that you worked on with your partner Chris Prammel, Women Empowered, um, be, because I think that's an interesting jumping point to talk about that. Um, you know, we're talking about mankind and you know in, in the greater sense of of humanity as a whole, but what you portrayed in your documentary women empowered is about specific women's endeavors in powerlifting and how that made them feel not feel but how that empowered them to grow beyond their particular spot in american society as a whole so what was it that made you decide to take on that particular subject and 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 um focus on that in your your documentary yeah so i mean there there's there's kind of two origins one is that um within the kind of more how do you say positive vein of body positivity um you know more women getting into strength sports um you know not necessarily for the typical cardio routine or toning um but really wanted to become physically strong and i think that this is as are with men or any human being, you know, the stronger we get, there's a, a certain boost of confidence that we have. And I kind of wanted to understand what it was like for them because, you know, a powerlifting gym I go to, and if I, you know, take a look around and I, I'll see someone, you know, squatting or deadlifting, I kind of stop and pause and I kind of admire what they're doing. And I, I think for women, it's, it's a different experience too, because, right, there's also this idea that like, you know, in a kind of creepy way, you know, they guys want to hit on them so they'll oh well, let me correct your squat form or something like that and so i wanted to kind of focus them on no really my hand has to be there <laughs> you're right Sorry. No, it's okay but um you know focus them on as lifters but then also focus them on as like the challenges that, that come from being a woman in the gym basically so uh you know chris uh is a so my buddy, Chris Precision Video Solutions, that's his page on uh, Instagram. Uh, I've known him since I was five. And he's always been into, uh, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with Screamer, Jeet Kune Do. He, has, he used to have his own dojo before COVID and then it shut down in Jersey. Um, but he has two young daughters and they will most certainly be doing martial arts and strength training in some form or another. So I think for us, it just seems like a good time to focus on, you know, these women in these powerlifting gyms and to focus on the kind of diversity of experience and the commonalities and also just how like amazing powerlifting is as a community. It's extremely supportive. I mean, even if you go to powerlifting meets, there's no sense of booing or, or cheering for one person over the other. Everybody wants to see you do the lift. I mean, that's, you know, what the sport's about. Even if you don't like the person, you still want them to see them bench. Um, so we just thought it'd be kind of cool to focus on, on them in particular. And to kind of you know argue our way through what would be part one of the, hopefully a series of you know social and critical commentary on the status of physical strength in American society today. So that was kind of like our first you know video in this series. I was um, so we've kind of moved on to your your um, your documentary, but one thing I'd drop back real quick to your um, your podcast. Your production quality on your podcast was one of the first things that really caught my eye or my ear with your podcast. Um, 
for a 30 minute pot, 30, 45 minute podcast, which is generally what your podcast runs, it is so dense, well scripted, and full of just it, great information in that time frame. It's very impressive from a production value and a planning standpoint. Um, I I find that very interesting, right? We have a very like kind of free flowing, you know, concept here. We don't really script a whole lot, but yours is very tight, um, and that's very impressive. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, but so back to the documentary, um, we have the same, I don't want to say creepy problem, but when it comes to jujitsu, mm. we have a very similar creepy problem yes. in it, just in the community in general, right? I mean, we, um, jujitsu is a very up close and personal kind of thing, sure. right? It, it takes a, it, it takes a certain, it takes a certain type of of person to be a female and want to do this, but it also takes a very special gym culture to nurture those female individuals who want to undertake jujitsu. Um, we're a little selfishly proud of the, the, uh, the environment that we've built here in our gym that we do have multiple female members who generally don't have a problem rolling with male members yeah. um we protect our female members i get pretty, called out pretty much for yeah. every night by, by the female members yeah we, yeah we you know it, it's always a good feeling when you get called out by a, a female member of the gym to roll because that means they feel extremely yeah. comfortable with you okay, um cool. so we you know we very we we protect our female members um, you know very carefully. We had we had uh, one of our gym mates on our podcast, uh, Liz, and I mean we don't need to protect her, but <laughs> no. we still do. I mean she's a little savage. I mean she she got her blue belt the same day I got mine. She's a very intense individual, but it's still more of that uh, that brother feel that you know I'm not going to let someone touch somebody inappropriately and put them in a bad space in the gym with me we will punish that yeah <laughs> very very harshly we, we we yeah we will punish that here yeah and a lot of gym uh, there's a lot of jujitsu gyms that that's your culture as well that if you do something to a female that's inappropriate you your next role is going to be with someone you're not going to like yeah um, interesting okay yeah huh. they, the mad enforcer, the gym enforcer, the black belt who saw what you did, the purple belt who saw what you did, the angry blue belt who's just really big and strong and mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he likes to choke people. So, uh, yeah, so we we guard our culture very carefully and we want to make sure that we have, we want to make sure we have quality individuals here who are going to continue to add to the gym culture. Mm -hmm and protect each other. Um, what it, do you see a parallel to that in the powerlifting community? Um, and, and what does that look like in, in your particular corner of strength culture? Well, first, I think it's great that, um, that there's a high degree of respect in, in jujitsu. And of course, as, as a, you know, Russian art, you know, I think that literally so, um, so 
you know, with, with strength culture, um, I, you know, I would say that in serious powerlifting gyms, I mean, well, there, there'll probably be a comment or two. And if there is, I think those individuals, those women who might have the comment directed, I'm sure they'll shut it down. Um, uh, I've never really seen anything like that personally. I mean, I've heard, of course, it's more on like the Instagram mafia, if you will, of like really weird, inappropriate comments. And it's usually by guys who do it. Yeah. It's like these like skinny little, you know, dudes from Greece or something. And they, <laughs> and they make some like weird comment and it's like, who the fuck are you, Nikos? You know, like it's just <laughs> like that kind of thing. I think that they get more of, and of course, American guys do the same thing. I'm not gonna, but um, so I think that there tends to be more of that you know, kind of shit posting kind of phenomenal where they'll defend each other. In terms of the gym stuff, I mean, again, I'm a guy, so I don't really see that a lot. Um, I had her, I've had heard complaints, of course. And I think that um, people in a powerful gym, I think they're pretty friendly. And I think they're, if, if there is something like that, I think they will let each other know, hey, look, you're not welcome here. I, I know that there was one instance, I think somewhere in like Long Island, New York, where the guy was like inappropriate or harassed and basically he got a sort of ass blown out like you know people just started saying oh don't go to this gym because this guy is you know harassing women this is like going back 10 years before my time in the sport um so i think that there is that dynamic but again unfortunately it's um you still have a lot of like i'll use this word like toxic machismo um where some guys will just you know for them, it's like their outlet to be an ass and, um, you know, bother, you know, female lifters. And I think more and more that's becoming challenged, I think, in many ways. Um, so I'm not sure if there's a protocol per se, but I know online, they definitely do their best to, you know, call members out. And um, I know if I saw it, I certainly would. I mean, I, I think it's disgusting, to be honest. And also, it just, it's, I mean, being less of a man, that's how I look at it. If you're, if you need to like somehow, you know, bother some woman squatting or doing whatever, I mean, that just, you know, it's more of a descriptor of that person, right? Than it is. Yeah. So. It, it, it's not a descriptor of the, the culture or the activity. It's a descriptor of the individual. Yeah. 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 So I, I, th I think the one area where there's like, I think, I feel like a Olympic weightlifting has a much more dominant female presence there. I'm not sure what it is. Um, I'm sure there's still harassment issues there, but I, looking from the outside, I feel like there people are a bit more like conscious of that and maybe less so in powerlifting. But again, that's just my totally rough impression there. Do you think it has something to do with Olympic weightlifting being an Olympic sport and that opening it up to the, the female competitor, whereas you what I'm going to call traditional powerlifting, right? The, sure. the, the, the three lift, you know, bench squat dead um, is not an Olympic sport. And therefore it, it has the opportunity for it to be, you know, more of a segregated sport and maybe interesting up, up until now, right. It, it right. can ex be a more masculine space and exclude the women. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, I didn't really, I never really thought about it that way. That that could very well be it. Um, I, I know, put it this way: when I first announced to a few folks I know in powerlifting about, you know, just focusing on women in lifting. I mean, I had at least, and this is 
at most actually two other guys, I'm obviously not gonna mention their names, other powerlifters. One is like pretty somewhat no well known, the other, you know, isn't. Um, who said, oh, well, why, why are you focusing on women? That's weird. You know, and they, they gave me this really self-defensive like response. And I'm, I'm feeling like saying like, well, dude, I mean, there's so many, there's so many reasons why. I mean, first of all, there was a great study by Andrew Charnigo, who's a weightlifter. And he said that the strength gap between men and women as of 2004 was something like 90% closing. Um, and that's, if you take into account like juice gear, all that stuff. Um, Even men were just raw body weight. Yeah, even in terms of that, like comparatively speaking, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it, because as, as more women compete in the sports, you know, the, the they have a more competitive weight, you know, and so I thought that that was fascinating. That's kind of why I also wanted to do the documentary was to find a sort of profile some of these folks and their anecdotes. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, to answer your question, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I always feel like weightlifting, weightlifting is kind of like the prince of. Um, strength sports you know it's clean it's nice it's almost like ballet yeah you go to powerlifting it's like a bunch you know it's just you yank that bar up and you put it down or if you're strong man you heave that stone it's not always very pretty but weight but weightlifting always has this this art form to it um so i always feel like it's more of a proper thing anyway i don't know that's just my own bias no, I, I can see where you're coming from. It, it, it's sort of like, you know, Olympic weightlifting is like the, you know, the, your pretty aunt from um, the Hamptons and, and the power lifter is like, you know, the, the uncle from Jersey, right? Well, kind of thing. Olympic lifting also, some of the lifts require more flexibility, dexterity, more opening yes. of the hips and things like that. And this, I don't mean to sound stereotypical, but no. sometimes women lend themselves to be much more technical and that is not just that is not just exclusive to olympic lifting that's muay thai that's boxing it's jujitsu you typically like i love when when there's a ufc event or a muay thai like i like watching female strikers yes because Mm -hmm. most of them not all but i think it's fair to say most of them don't have that raw knockout power so they don't hunt the knockout they hunt the technique you know what I mean? They, they focus on being much more technical. And I think that, yes, of course, the squat and the bench, the deadlift, they all have technique, but it's power. You know what I mean? Like that, you grip and rip, you know, that's, that's the mentality. And there, of course, there's technique. But if you don't do a, a snatch, a barbell snatch with proper technique, you're going to screw it up. You know what I mean? Like you're not oh, yeah. a, a, a clean, you know, a, a clean and jerk. You know what I mean? Squat, clean, and jerk. If you don't have proper technique, you're not getting it. You know what I mean? Whereas a deadlift, like, yeah, you need to have good technique so you don't screw your back up. If You know what I mean? You need to know what you're doing, but it can be a little more raw, I think. Yeah. Well, even just looking at people like Catherine Nye or Maddie Rogers, two of the top you know, weightlifters in America, I mean, they just get under the bar for the snatch. They, are, they accelerate so much. I mean, it's just, it's impressive to watch. And, and even just the power output of Olympic weightlifting. I mean, for, for me, I secretly am like kind of a, you know, a weightlifter wannabe. Um, <laughs> I, love, I love doing cleans and jerks. I mean, snatches, eh, but um, clean and jerks. I mean, clean and jerks is a lot of fun. Snatch is a lot of fun too. If you get it down. If you can, if you can get it. I remember I yeah. messed up. No, time. it's not a problem. <laughs> no, I, I, I did a, uh, Joe, do you remember the deep squatter archives? 
Yeah, I've heard of. I've heard of. Yeah, I'll send you the link. There's a there's a beginner Olympic lifting program on there. It's a 12 week cycle, and I did it like way back in the early 2000s, okay. and it's it's pretty awesome. But yeah, I actually got to the point where I could actually do a. I could do a snatch. It wasn't at like Olympic weight, but I could actually do a snatch. And that was, that was pretty awesome. Um, but if you think going back to what we just talked about as far as technique and about what Cody was saying, if you think what happened tonight, right, we're going through, we're getting ready for a belt test here and, and Cody and I are getting ready to test for our blue belts. And we've got two sisters who are members of our team and they our coach put them, they're not ready to test yet, but he wanted to see kind of where they were. And he put them up, you know, in the line to work on the test tonight. And the girl's technique was fucking brilliant. And then Liz, the, the, the blue belt that Jerry just mentioned, she got complimented last year by our black belt that she had one of the you know, the best blue belt tests that he had seen. She oh did, wow! She did one of the uh, one of the techniques perfectly. He had never seen it ever done perfectly, and she did it. Yep. Oh, wow. yeah. and, and so it, it kind of comes back to that that concept where women are typically more technical, men were a little more violent violent with it, right? And and the thing that's holding this particular sister back from testing for her blue belt is not that she can't do the techniques in the test is that she's not rolling like a blue belt she's yet. not aggressive enough yeah she's not aggressive enough she in a bit yeah, yeah she lacks yeah, the violence that she's very pat she's very passive in the rolls if uh when i roll with her if i don't give her the position she can't take it well, and she won't. She, she won't, won't take, take it. it. Yeah, yeah. She, she's very passive. I have to encourage her to get her to, to the violence spot. Yeah, I mean, there could be a, a variety of reasons as, as to why. I mean, I, I know, for example, um, Charlie Dubs is one of the, the lifters that we had uh, on the documentary. Uh, yes. One has been training her whole life in powerlifting. You know, incredible squatter, a 500-plus, same with deadlift, 500s. Um you know, and when you when you see her, I mean, I, we were Chris and I did a lot of B roll footage taping her, and I mean, man, she like gears up. She's like a raging bull, and I mean, I would not want to, <laughs> I would not <laughs> want to like have, get a from her. She, you know, and I think what's great about like, and I'm sure with, with martial arts as well, but with powerlifting is that yeah, you take people who are relatively meek, regardless of who they are, and you just see them being built up you know, and, and that's what sort of incredible powerlifting. It's like, you know, some of these women that I know, um, you know, some of them are, are very quiet, but as soon as they get into the squat rack, it's like game over. And it's yeah. just so awesome to see that. And I think for all the kind of insanity with, you know, society these days and being torn apart, it's great to see men and women kind of forget some of those differences in some regard as lifters and just sort of support each other. Um, and that, that to me is, is awesome. Like I, the fact that more women are now doing these sports, I mean, God bless, like that is incredible. Um, I just wish that, uh, you know, women would stop being sold cardio programs as the only form of exercise appropriate for the female sex. Right. I wish they could do stuff more like, you know, 
advertise women for powerlifting or jujitsu or whatever, you know, like really break down that divide as much as possible. Yeah. And the, the, you know, a lot of you, you talked about the, the fitness in, influencers on Instagram or the fitspos, you know, they're really doing the female audience a disservice when it comes to like, you know, what they, what they're portraying to that particular audience, you know, get your booty bands and you know, do your, do, do your, your sidewalks with your booty bands. It's like, was it, if, uh, Workout tapes by Fonda, but Fonda, yeah, yeah, exactly. Fonda don't got a motor in the back of her Honda. The way, exactly. The way, the way I've always, the way I've always uh, told people when they've asked about my preference in women, it's like if I can't tell whether you're coming or going, I'm not interested. <laughs> Sorry, if you don't have a figure, you <laughs> I don't care. I mean, you know, if, if I can't tell which direction you're coming, I don't, you know, yeah, I'm not interested. A little, little, little bit of yeah. figure there. If my arms fall when I hug you. Not yet. I need a stopping point. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, looking at your, looking at your website, um, Joe, it looks like you're trying to get a blog started on uh, the scholars and iron website. Emphasis on, on trying. Yeah. I, um, I, all the other things I have to do in life. I, I wish I can get around to doing that more robustly. Yeah. I mean, basically it's, it's sort of a, a more, so just a written way of, of getting across the message that I'm trying to do. I mean, the, the audience basically is, you know, um, uh, skinny nerds or, you know, the type of academics that I come from and wanting those people to be like, hey, look, uh, reading's great. That's awesome. I love doing it myself, but so is lifting a lot of weight as well. And so trying to kind of get that across, I think sometimes my unfortunate problem is that I come across a little bit snarky at times. So I have to kind of like tone that down. Um, but yeah, it's trying to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough too, because right when you're so zealous about a project and you look at your kind of like former peers and circles, it's, you want to evangelize them, right? It's like, Hey, what are you guys doing? I'm going to show you like the, you know, the, the chosen path here. Why Let me you liberate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll liberate you from your, your slovenly ways. And unfortunately, most people get self-defensive and they kind of coil up. So I kind of have to adjust the tone. I'm trying to write an article on Mishima right now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the gist of the blog. I always try to find writers who want to get into some philosophical aspect. I have one uh, college friend, Steen Byrne, she's out in LA now, but she had this great article wanting to write about um, sports injuries and uh, concepts of, uh, who was that? Spinoza, of the Dutch philosopher Spinoza. And okay. I mean, stuff like that would be, you know, more up the alley there, but it's it's sort of a not stillborn project, but I need to kind of pump some life into it. I, I love the title of it. I mean, Notes on a Sarcopenic Culture, is is quite perfect and for any of the rolling rocks family who doesn't know what sarcopenia is it it's the 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 dwindling of muscle uh, of muscle tone or muscle fibers it's uh you know sarcopenia is very prevalent in older people who you know aren't getting their exercise or their nutrition right it's typical muscle wasting so um the, the title notes on a sarcopenic culture pretty that's pretty awesome um, I like the title there. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I just wish more academics would take their body as seriously as they take their intellectual development. It's a pretty modest, not very unique proposal. So, 
Well, yeah. So hopefully you'll find some more contributors and, you know, we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, but uh, we might be willing to contribute if you're open to it. I, of course, I'm open to it. Yeah, of course. You guys are sharp as anything, man. Now, for sure. Absolutely. I'm happy on there. Awesome. So we're, um, this is a good place. We're going to take a break real quick um, and hear from our sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the final portion of the show. Um, and then we'll close it up. So uh, we'll be right back after hearing from our sponsor. So we'll be right back. And we're back. Okay, so Joe and I had had tossed around a comic that had made um, an interesting reemergence on Twitter. Um, and I sent it, I posted it up and Joe caught it and we talked about it a little bit. Um, and then after Joe and I talked about it a little bit more, we attempted to, to find the author. And it turns out that the comic that made its appearance on Twitter was actually edited from the greater body of work. Um, I don't necessarily know that the greater body of work told a different story than the original comic, but the, the original comic basically was, it was four panes and it was the, the first three panes were a, a jacked dude and a girl. And it was, Jack dudes think that people think of them as warriors and, you know, chieftains when really what we think of them are, and this is we in the general sense of the, the author's voice, really what we think of them is they're very shallow and they lift heavy things and they must not be very interesting. And the last frame was the author's, you know, cartoon self saying, well, you know, we're all going to be flabby when we get older, but, you know, he'll be flabby and uninteresting where we'll be flabby and interesting because we take on intellectual pursuits. And uh, when you look at the, the, the work as a whole, once we found it, it was the author talking about how he wants to go to the beach and, you know, he's worried about what other people think of him as he you know, sheds his clothing and puts on his board shorts and he's okay with everybody thinking that he's a land whale or, you know, blindingly pale or whatever. And then it goes into this, the, the, the four, um, the four cells of the comic that we talked about. And then it's, um, the author's, um, declaration that he doesn't care what everybody thinks. And, you know, he, he tears open his shirt and says, come at me beach, um, which is somewhat humorous, but um, it, Joe and I talked about this a little bit. And we we kind of found it fascinating in that. Um, and, and Joe, feel free to, to put your particular spin on this, but what I took from it was one in the original, um, the, the original four cells that we saw on Twitter was he was being very judgmental about saying that people shouldn't be judgmental, right? He was kind of saying, well, you know, you should be judging us based on all of our other criteria. But when we look at this muscular man, we're only going to judge him on the fact that he's muscular. And when we look at the work as a whole, 
I found the the original author's statement of it being, um, I believe the term he used was an economic decision or a marketing decision to become fit. I found that interesting from the standpoint of anybody who decides to become fit or muscular or, you know, get in shape or being fed basically propaganda from the media that that's what you're supposed to feel or that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and, and all of us smart people understand that's not what you're supposed to do. And you're supposed to read books. And like you said, you know, sit in your underwear in a dark room and do <laughs> drugs and read Nietzsche and, you know, think about the Ubermensch and, and whatnot. Um, so I, I found this, I think we both found this comic in either iteration, very interesting. Um, but, you know, wanted to talk about that, you know, in this last segment of, of, of the, the pod here and get your input and, and your, you know, kind of your insights on, on that particular comic strip. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, um, so there's, there's two reactions I had. One was like a, a hard eye roll, like, okay, dude, I get it. The other part, maybe the more charitable part of me was like, oh man, I like, I can relate. Like I, you know, like when I first started lifting, I went to a powerlifting gym. I was like, oh, these gorillas, at least I'm smart. You know, I did have that thought at one point, <laughs> but you know, it's, but that comes from a very insecure place. And I think in American culture, I mean, even, even further back, like I was talking about this with, uh, <laughs> with Daniel Kunitz, who was uh, author of Lyft and I had him on the show. And, you know, he talks about how the first real kind of intellectual disdain towards the body came after the ancient Greeks. It was actually, unfortunately, <laughs> my people, the Romans, who were uh, not um, at all, you know, fans of so-called physical culture of the Greeks. And even, even some of the early Christians too associated like the Olympic games as sort of being pagan and therefore, you know, there's this uh, emphasis on the body and early Christian theology. And so there's this rooted um, kind of bias against working out, I guess, you know, and carving out the body. And I think especially in America, you know, the 20th century where health and fitness immediately equals big muscles um, all the kind of negative associations that come with it, you know, like people who work out are probably more blue collared people who are blue collared or, are, are, you know, dumb. And I don't believe this by the way, but I mean, that's, I think there's this kind of like, you know, bias that comes with it, big muscles, labor versus, you know, your, your frail little guy working at an accounting desk and, you know, tallying up numbers. And it's, um, it's, it's really, <laughs> In many ways, it's it's just sort of disappointing that we're still at this ridiculous dichotomy between jock meathead on one hand and kind of anemic anorexic nerd on the other. Um, and I think this comic kind of emblemizes the problem. It's like part, part of me wants to come out to the guy and be like, look, dude, here's a barbell. Let me show you what to do. And I don't mean to be a dick, but simply like give it a chance. Maybe you'll feel a lot better. Because clearly what you're exhibiting is is classical projection, if you will, right, in, in psychology. I think that's exactly what what's going on there. Um, I, I don't, that's why for me, I think with Scholars and Iron, a big motivation for me to start it was exactly to reach out to those people. Like drop the snark. You're going to love it. Like I guarantee you're going to love it. Once you get involved in the weight room, 
it's just, it's a great place to be. You'll start to realize that there's a, a home here for you. It's really a home for anybody. As long as you want to be serious about it, sure, make it yours. Well, the way the, I looked at that, he sent it to me. I read it. I actually looked at it several times. And I thought about mm -hmm. it and I showed it to my wife. We talked about it. And it was funny because she literally said, well, she understood exactly what the comment was. She's like, yeah, those people just don't want to work out. She's like, it's hard. I don't want to work out. You do. She's like, it's hard. I don't want to do it, but you enjoy it. I don't. So the writer of this was literally saying, I do not want to do something. So I'm going to, like you said, project this false sense of my dominance over those people mentally because I know I can't dominate them physically. Yeah, and that and that comes back to the comment that that you and I talked about, Joe, in in the Instagram post about this was it really kind of reminded me of the old um, the Atlas training um, systems, yeah. you know, ads in the back of the, the the magazines where it was like you know the skinny kid gets yeah. the sand kicked in his face by the the jock on the. Yeah. Uh, on the beach and then he you know, he goes and he does the 12 week atlas program and you know he's the new jock on the beach but it's like the skinny dude kicking the sand in the face of the of the the big guy right it, it's that mirror opposite um you know, to to your point jerry um the disappointing thing about that was that i found with that com that comic was one uh, again it, it's you know, he's trying, the, the, the author was trying to say, hey, you know, we're not fit, but we're all these other things. But people who are fit are one-dimensional. Yeah. Right. I, I found that very disappointing, right? Because Absolutely. from his standpoint, he's saying, well, the fit people only look at us as being not fit when we're all these other, other things when he's looking at fit people the same way. But you, but you see that every day. There's, I'm not going to mention his name. But there's a very, very popular uh, ESPN voice who literally said women should not be in the UFC or fighting sports because they're weaker. That guy's a moron. And yet it's like, I've watched you train, dude. You can't even throw a fucking uppercut. Fuck off. <laughs> I mean, uh, you would get <laughs> yeah, your ass whipped by Amanda Nunes. I mean, I would not want to get hit by her. No. I, I would love to train with her, but I would not want to be on the receiving end of her anger. And I think it's that sort of stuff, this, this whole, well, I don't like it, or I don't understand it, or I don't want to do it, so I'm going to belittle it. And you see that in everything. Not only in, I mean, you see that in, uh, there's, there's people who talk shit to behind my back because I train in here. Oh, well, you're wasting your time. What are you doing in there? I mean, you're 44. Why are you doing that stupid stuff? Because I enjoy it. If you bring your ass in here instead of playing video games and drinking beer and getting fat, maybe you'll learn something. I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, as a maybe a former member of the kind of, you know, Brooklyn cafe, you know, scene at one point in my life, you know, I can almost tell you right now that they're extremely one dimensional people. And in fact, I know that because they have, you know, a regimen of constant critique, ironic comments you know, booze, coffee, drugs, a lot of stuff. Um, it, it is a very one-dimensional forced lifestyle because, you know, I, I heard something interesting recently. Mishima mentions this, but I think that's been mentioned by quite a few authors. You know, there's something like irony is sort of the metaphor of the weak. Like 
mm-hmm. everything is ironic to a person who just is simply miserable. Like, you know, yeah. the guy there, he's always like, for example, he made, you know, making the comment about, oh, you're 44, why are you in there? It's like, right. It's like, everything is ironic to you, you know? And I think that there, that, that really is a, a quality or attribute, not just to, not to physically weak people. I mean, I, I still consider myself physically weak, but just to people who just have this moral weakness to them or ethical weakness to them. Yeah. And I don't really want to be around those people. Like I want to help them if they want to help. And if they want to like come lift with me by God, by all means, I'll take, you know, let's do it, you know? But there is something about that where it's like, man, like, I am so sorry for you. <laughs> I, yeah. I just don't have time for it. it yeah, it's it, constantly it's too much. Well, and, and, and I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about the strength gap kind of closing between men and women. Yeah. Um, Jerry and I kind of had a little side conversation while Cody was talking. We wonder if... We wonder if that's not because men in general are becoming weaker. less at, yeah, they're becoming weaker. Um, it, you know, it, it's not necessarily that women are getting stronger while, while women in general, the, the morphology of humanity is changing in hmm. general, right? I mean, men are getting taller, women are getting taller, right? The average height of men back in the fifties was like five, six, right? Average height of men now is 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, Same, you know, kind of quartile goes for women as well. But in general, you can look at popular, not popular science, but like um, the media, right? A number of years ago, there was a ton of articles about um, women who were going out and getting a degree and getting a, a, a job and a career, and they were taking care of their boyfriends, right? Who were staying home, playing video yeah. games, right? Living off of the largesse of their very successful girlfriend. If you look at the number of college graduates, right? College graduation is, um, is overwhelmingly a female dominated area in general right if you look at all total um graduations right not necessarily in stem or any particular um evocation um women generally out matriculate men in in over the whole right so kind of wonder if it doesn't come back to men in general are getting weaker where women are getting stronger or not necessarily stronger, but they're being allowed to, how do I say this? They're being allowed to rise to the level of their ability where maybe they weren't necessarily allowed, allowed by society to rise to the level of their ability. I think it's something as simple as hubris. You look at it, it's just being humble. We come into this gym, you train jujitsu, you train, you power lift, like you're talking about squat, deadlift, bench press. You will be humbled looking at other people. We get humbled in here all the time. You, you will be humbled by somebody. A lot of these people look down at us because they do not, they have never been humbled and they do not want to be humbled. They think themselves better than you. Well, look at me. I have this degree. Okay, what is that doing for you? Because right now you're doing a serving me fucking coffee. I make more money than you. I've got college graduates who have advanced degrees who work for me. Me, I have a GED. 
Why? Because I had stuff to do when I was younger. I didn't finish high school, but I did join the Marine Corps. I did put my nose to the grindstone. I make a lot of money now because I work my ass off. But people still like, well, I got a college degree. No, I don't care. I'm still smarter than you. Your college degree don't mean shit if you really don't use it. And I think, I, I actually think looking at that comic strip, I think it's literally comes down to hubris and being humbled. That writer has never been humbled. He's never been put in a situation where he's been made to feel humble. And most of American men, women, I think there's a, I think that's the difference. Women are humbled a lot because they're, they're told they're weaker. They're told they're, just, they're, they're not as good as men. They're raised to believe certain things. Men, you know, are a little different. And then you get to this where you can't fight in school. You can't play sports. You can't play football. You can't do this. A lot of these, these younger men coming up, these 20, 30 year old men have never, ever been humbled. Mm. And they're full of the shit. I think, I think that in general, um, yeah, I mean, just growing up for myself, growing up mostly in the 90s, you still had all the benefits of the previous generations of getting bullied and picked on and fights. Um, I, uh, I used to teach, you know, both at the collegiate level and, and I taught a grad class as well. And what I've noticed about Gen Z um, is that there is this massive propensity to have and want self-inflicted wounds and to be very sensitive. And, and the problem is that they, they don't know how to, they're intellectually challenged. They don't know how to often rise to occasions, so they personalize it a lot. Like, well, what do you mean by that? I'm this or I'm that. And I feel that that is, is, is a very dangerous place to be if you indeed want to become a critical thinker in this world, in this society. And I, I'm very worried about the kind of these sort of barriers that we're erecting, you know, whether it's the, the more toxic sides of body positivity with like, you know, celebrating obesity, for example, um, you know, or it's just simply being hypersensitive to every single idea that comes around that you don't want to like. Um, it's, it, you know, and again, I'm someone who considers themselves on the left. And, and, and so I, I myself sometimes have to throw my hands up and be like, look, guys, you know, obesity is not a great thing. Um, and, and also, I think, too, it's like you have to learn how to intellectually defend an argument. And you have to also learn how to just sort of, I don't know, ignore people sometimes. So when I, when I see these cartoons like that, it's almost like shocking. You know, it's like, man, can you imagine if they're making that cartoon about an overweight person? That would never fly. The person would be crucified in a second in the media. You know, or if it was vice versa, oh, yeah, look at that artist over there. Look what he's doing, you know. It's like they would never dare to make fun of, you know, the kind of liberal intellectuals of New York like that. So there is something that I feel there's a lot of uh, disdain on a class level. I think there's a disdain on just a social level of people wanting to better themselves. And I never understood this idea, as, you, as you've been mentioning throughout this, you know, Scott, about people being people who lift or people doing jiu-jitsu as being one-dimensional. I've just, I've, I haven't really met those people. I, I've always met them as to be multifaceted, interesting people to talk to, such as yourselves. I, I just haven't met the typical meathead. So I don't know, maybe I just run in different circles, but it's, uh, it's, it's never like that. I, I've only met one and he was a short-lived. Um, yeah, he didn't last long. He was, he was a short-lived individual at our gym. Um, but in general, I will 100% agree with you that, um, I, our team, our team here at, at total defense martial arts, right. We have a very, um, 
we've got an interesting cross-section of people. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got lawyers, we've got military contractors, we've got social service workers. Uh, we um, have a college professor. College professor. Um, you know, we have a just the, the cross-section pilot. pilot, yeah, is, uh, is very interesting, and none of them are one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the... I think the, the the message here is to ne- to never judge somebody based on one aspect that you see of their life, right? It's I mean Jerry Jerry Jerry's the master of the closing rant, but um, you know it, it, it's I don't want anybody to judge me on the fact that I'm an engineer. Okay, well okay, so he's an engineer, so he's a skinny pencil neck little geek who you know, whatever. I also don't want anybody to judge me on the fact that I lift three days a week or that I do jujitsu three days a week. I don't want to be judged on those individual criteria of my personality. I want to be judged as a whole. And I, I think that's the whole thing about this, this comic strip that we've been discussing is that it's very unfair to anybody to judge them on one single aspect of their life or their personality or their interests. Um, they should be judged as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the vic- nowadays it's the victimhood mentality. Everybody's a victim to somebody else, which is bullshit. Uh, I've 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 ranted about this more than I can remember on our podcast. The fact that just treat people Quite a few with times. a little bit of dignity, and never judge someone based on what you think. Um, I'm a blue collar worker. I work in a warehouse. I'm a management. I'm in management, but I actually do physical labor. 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week. But I'm also very well read. I'm very, you know, I write. I'm very articulate. Uh, which goes against every stereotype that that comic strip did. And that, it, yeah. it bothered me because literally they, I could see the same thing them pointing at someone who's in our gym doing jujitsu. Well, those guys are beating on each other. They must be stupid. I mean, we come in here Sundays and we, we spar. We've uh, decided to start adding more tie to our training. So me and Scott and Cody, we spar on Sunday mornings. 6 a.m., we're beating each other up. Why? Because it's another aspect of our strength training. But we also have these wonderful conversations. We do our podcasts. We're doing so much more than other people who themselves are the one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. It's like they can't get beyond their one dimension to understand that people actually they only have one facet, so they can't accept the fact that other people have multiple more, facets. More, yeah, multiple I, I honestly facets think well. it comes exactly that. It's the fact that they they don't have much of a very active life and hobby, and and so it's easy to look at somebody else and just simply, you know, pick them apart. I mean, it, it really it's pathetic. It, it really comes down to that. And uh, like I said, I think for me, the motivation is to get more nerds, and I still consider myself a nerd. You know, out there lifting. And doing something and just feeling amazing in their own flesh because you only get it once so you know. yeah we have yeah. a lot of nerds in here there's a lot there's our gym is probably packed full of nerds even our even our head coach brian i mean he's a very smart guy. college graduate mm-hmm. i mean he went to college he's got a uh uh electrical you know he's like a high level electrician okay. uh, he works for a large corporation here locally he teaches jujitsu because he loves jujitsu. This isn't his career. This is his love. He has another career. 
Uh, we have, you know, Greta. Uh, Matt Greta was on our podcast. He's a pilot, but he's also super smart. We have some of the greatest conversations. I mean, he's into punk music like we are. Yeah. He reads some of the coolest, you know, he's into anime. He reads comics. He, he digs some of the same philosophers, some of the same poets we do, some of the same writers we do. And it's just like, you know, uh, we have a college professor who trains here and he it's amazing i mean he's from uh massachusetts, massachusetts. Yeah. so he brings that you know down here like you you know he comes down here and he has this whole different aspect and we love it uh, matt warner mm-hmm. was on our podcast he's a writer by trade and his lifestyle is different and but yeah, he's super, super smart. A young, a, a guy I work with knows Matt Warner through a different channel. Had no idea he trained martial arts and was a purple belt. It's like, yeah, dude, that guy chokes me out all the, all time. the time. He beats my ass. Oh, well, I've never thought that about him. I, I, I thought he just <laughs> did this stuff. Yeah, that dude will legitimately kill you. I mean, it's a struggle in here, and he's and we're playing by rules in here. He will legitimately kill most people. Yeah. <laughs> And he, but he's just, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, I write horror sure. novels and sure. plays. Yeah. Sure. Uh, right so on. I think that's a good place to wrap it up, man. We've been going a hell of yeah. a lot longer. I, I know. I'm like, I feel bad. I'm like, shit, did I ramble so much? Was, no, dude, no, this was awesome. No, this was awesome. Uh, we, we actually, we would love to have you back, back on yeah. uh, sometime in the near future, because um, I think there's a whole yeah. gamut of things that we could <laughs> discuss I, I love i mean I, I actually watched your documentary and loved it i found oh, that oh, fascinating right. I, I love i the the first young lady you spoke to joe and the last young lady you spoke to i love the fact that they both had different lifestyles but they both had almost the same message especially the the, the lady at the end an african-american woman who literally Bacola. told your camera yeah. yeah i've really not had any problems yeah i don't agree with some of the bylaws at some of these meets but yeah, we can change that later. That doesn't affect me. I'm just here to do this. It's, it's like, that is awesome because she's like, yeah, that that's, I don't see that as a problem. This is what I'm here to do. And I, and I purposely asked questions trying to elicit yeah. as much antagonistic answers. And when I got the ones I did, I mean, some of them were like, okay, that makes sense. Others were just super positive. So honestly, good on them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it. No, I'd love, love to come down guys, visit. Maybe we could do something where, you know, I'll roll with you guys at some point. If you guys want to work out, you know, lift yeah. or whatever, I'll be happy to do that, switch off. But whatever you have planned, I mean, I'd love to uh, pop on the next podcast or whatever. You know, let me know. Awesome. Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure that out. So um, for the Rolling Rocks family, where can they find you? You know, what's your social media handles? Um, if you, know, you want to give it out, if you, want to give it out sure, you know, if, if you don't, that's cool. But you know, where can guys find you if they want to get into the 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 documentary or your podcast or, or hit you up on the social medias? Where where can folks find you? Yours. So um, my uh, Instagram is mostly where I do the social media uh, stuff. It's at Scholars and Iron, all you know, one word. Um, and then from there, I have a link for the documentary. And also there's my website, you know, www.scholarsandiron.com. All the podcasts are there. And again, just, you know, for my buddy, Chris, um, he's at Precision Video Solutions. Uh, he's the guy who basically you know, edited, filmed the whole thing. So, you know, I just was, a, I'm just a guy with an idea. He's the man with, you know, the kind of, 
you know, artist and, and magic behind all that. So really the credit uh, goes more to him than me, I would say, uh, if you actually enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, so check us both out, but uh, love to, you know, always like to read mail and have people comment and, you know, get at it. So appreciate being on guys. It's been lovely, really. We yeah. Th thank you very much for coming on where we'd love to have you back sometime here in the near future. Um, but we really appreciate your time tonight yeah. and uh, we've been running. Th this has been an awesome show. Yeah. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, so do, do you have any closing thoughts for us, Joe, before we sign out for the night? Yeah. Just, you know, if you're out there, if you lift, just re-rack your weights. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't want to keep coming back to like, you know, all those 150 pounders and I have to re-rack them. So now re-rack your weights and, and lift. If, even if you think it's scary, just start lifting. You're going to like love your life and you'll love it more than the IPA in your hand. I guarantee it. Fuck awesome. yeah. All right, man. Well, so for Joe, for Jerry, for Cody, for Scott, this has been Rolling Rocks Radio. Thank you very much for joining. We'll be back next week for another show. But until then, we're out. Later. The music for tonight's episode was But I Am Shafts of Light by Mayeth from their album, Wailing Village. <laughs>